and board meeting of August 17, 2023 at this time. Okay, um, just give me one second here to get me organized. I'm doing my survey. All right. Okay, and, um, welcome everyone. Thank you for all the participation on the board level. And um, I'm, you are, Madam Secretary, do you want to call the roll, please? Thank you, Commis Commissioner Connor. Present. Commissioner Thomas? Present. President Helfon? Present. Commissioner Driscoll? Here. Mr. Gandhi? Present. Commissioner Bridges? Present. And Commissioner Safai is not in attendance today. We do have a quorum. Right, thank you. Can I ask you, Madam Secretary, to turn your volume up a little? Can you do that? It's sort of... Is that better? Better. Item number two, communications. We welcome the public's participation during public comment periods. There will be an opportunity for general public comment at this meeting after closed session. And there will be an opportunity to comment on each discussion or action item on the agenda. Each item, each comment is limited to two minutes. Public comment will be taken both in person and remotely by call-in. For each item, the board will take public comment first attending the meeting in person and then from people attending the meeting remotely. Comments or opportunities to speak during the public comment period are available by phone by calling 565-0001, access code 2660-520-3021, then pound, then pound again. When connected, you will hear the meeting discussion, but you will be muted and in listening mode only. When your item of interest comes up, press star three to be added to the speaker line. Best practices are to call from a quiet location, speak clearly and slowly, then turn down your TV or radio. Please note that city policies along with federal, state, and local law prohibit discriminatory or harassing conduct against city employees and others during public meetings and will not be tolerated. Moreover, public comment is permitted only on matters within the jurisdiction of this meeting body. We thank you for joining us. Thank you, Madam Secretary. Will you call the next item? Item number three, closed session. At this time, the board will be moving into closed session item number three, fiscal year 2023-24, CEO and CIO performance evaluation. We're going to call for public comment before we enter close. Thank you. We have no in-person public comment on this item. Callers, you have not already done so. Please press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, we have no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Okay. Can I ask everyone to please um, enter the, the closed session and... Um, do we have a, a time that we're going to pro estimate we'll be back in?
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
Commissioner Bridges. Present. Mr. Driscoll. Present. Mr. Gandhi. Present. President Helcon. Present. Mr. O'Connor. Present. And Commissioner Thomas. Present. A quorum is present. Great. Thank you. Um, a motion's in order for vote whether we disclose discussions held in closed session. I'll move not to disclose content of closed session. Second. Okay, it's a motion has been made by President Tom, I mean, Commissioner Thomas and seconded by Commissioner Driscoll. Would you call for a public comment, Madam Secretary? Thank you. We have no in-person public comment on this item. A reminder to callers to press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, we have no callers on the line. Thank you, hearing no calls. Public comment is now closed. Thank you. Do you want to call item four, please? The vote. Uh, we haven't we voted, right? So all the emotion it's been made, right? We motion's sorry. been made. Those in it's not on the script, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Um Motion's been made by Commissioner Thomas and seconded by Commissioner Driscoll. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Those opposed? Nay. Okay, nay. Motion passes. Next item, please. Thank you. Item number four, general public comment. Do you want to call for a public comment, Madam Secretary? Uh, do we have in-person public comment? Ready? You could step up to the podium. We have what? Three. Fourth public comment. Five. Morning. Five. My name is Jordan Fine. I'm a lead research analyst with Unite Here Local 11, which represents 32,000 hotel and food service workers in Southern California and Arizona. We'll be addressing the board today regarding SFR's investment manager, Blackstone Group. Uh, your fund has invested $150 million in Blackstone Real Estate Partners 8, the owner of the Fairfield and the Loft Hotels by LAX Airport, and $100 million in Blackstone Real Estate Partners 9, which is the owner of the Sheraton Phoenix Hotel. Contracts at all three hotels expired on June 30th, and workers at the Fairfield and the Loft went on strike in July to fight for family-sustaining wages, affordable benefits, and a safe and humane workload. There's also an escalating labor dispute at the Sheraton Phoenix as workers fight for a fair contract. They have unaffordable health insurance and a 401k retirement instead of a defined benefit plan like SFERS and many other Blackstone investors. In response to strikes by employees at the Fairfield and the Loft, the hotels brought in workers from a third-party agency to try to break the strike. Outrageously, these hotels have employed very few African-American workers among their permanent unionized staff in spite of the union's demands for more diversity in hiring. Yet when in need of strike breakers, they were somehow able to find and hire a number of black workers, but only as temporary agency employees. We request that SFERS add an information agenda item to the upcoming September meeting concerning SFERS investments in Blackstone Managed Limited Partnerships and ask that the fund not reinvest with Blackstone until the contract disputes are resolved and Blackstone can guarantee labor peace at its hospitality investments and the company demonstrates inclusive hiring practices, including with respect to African-American workers. 
Uh, we're going to have some other speakers, and Laura will translate for them. Buenos días. Mi nombre es Graciela Navarro y trabajo para, tra, he trabajado durante 14 años de housekeeping en el hotel Sheraton del centro de Phoenix. Mi hotel es propiedad de Fracta y con dinero de sus fondos, así que gracias por escuchar mi historia. Good morning. My name is Graciela Navarro, and I work, uh, I've worked for 14 years as a housekeeper at the Sheraton Hotel in downtown Phoenix. My hotel is owned by Blackstone with money from your fund, so thank you for listening to my story. Tengo 72 años de edad. Soy la principal asistente de mi familia porque mi esposo se enfermó hace varios años y le tuvieron que reemplazar su riñón en el 2018. Pagamos más de 600 dólares por mes durante cuatro años porque el, segun, el seguro del hotel del Cherato era demasiado caro, incluyendo tuvimos que vender nuestros carros para poder pagar nuestras facturas médicas. I'm 72 years old and I'm the primary breadwinner of my family because my husband got sick several years ago. He had to have his kidneys replaced in 2018 and we were paying over $600 per month for medication for four years because the Sheraton Hotel insurance was too expensive. We even had to sell our car to pay medical bills. Estaba emocionada cuando abrieron el hotel y recuperamos el trabajo, pero fue aún peor porque al, al regresar nos daban, nos quisieron dar 30 habitaciones para limpiar y las habitaciones eran más diferentes. De, de limpiar porque renovaron el hotel. After the pandemic, I was excited when the hotel reopened and I got my job back. But it was even worse than before. They tried to give us 30 rooms to clean and the rooms were harder to clean because they'd renovated the hotel. La carga de trabajo se, se ha vuelto mucho más difícil Pero después de 14 años de trabajo, ahí ganamos solamente 17 dólares la hora. Tengo que pagar 1,100 de mi hipoteca, 300 dólares de luz. Estamos viviendo de cheque en cheque y no, te, no tengo una buena calidad de vida. The workload has gotten much harder, but after 14 years working there, I make only $17 per hour. Per month, I have to pay $1,100 for my mortgage and $300 for electricity, and I'm living paycheck to paycheck, and I do not have a good quality of life. Seconds remaining. Estoy agotada con, con dolor después de trabajar. No, nos llaman el corazón del hotel, pero, tra, ta, pero nos tratan como si fuéramos los pies. I'm exhausted and in pain after work. They call us the heart of the hotel, but they treat us like we're the feet. Quiero jubilarme como lo he, los miembros de, de su, ¿qué? 
fondo, pero el hotel no tiene un, una pensión y, las, y el seguro social no me paga lo suficiente, así que tengo que seguir trabajando. I want to retire like the members of your fund, but the hotel doesn't have a pension, and social security won't pay me enough, so I'm still working. De manera justa, dándonos atención médica, aseguranza y proceder un, un ¿qué? pensión, por favor, díganle que nos ayude correctamente. Blackstone is the largest investment company in the world with one trillion dollars. They can afford to pay us fairly, give us affordable health care, and provide a pension. Please tell them to do the right thing. Thank you. Buenos días, mi nombre es Rosalba Sánchez y he sido empleada doméstica en un hotel desde el 2010. Me estoy acercando a la edad de jubilación, pero tengo que seguir trabajando porque no tengo una pensión y no gano lo suficiente como para pagar la renta y ahorrar para la jubilación. My name is Rosalba Sánchez and I've been a uh housekeeping worker at the Sheraton Hotel since 2010. I'm approaching retirement age, but I have to keep working because I don't have a pension and don't earn enough money to both pay for rent and save for retirement. El aumento en el costo de la vivienda me ha golpeado extremadamente fuerte. La casa que renté durante años alrededor de 600 dólares por mes se vendió repentinamente. The rising cost of housing has hit me extremely hard. The home I rented for years at around $600 a month was suddenly sold. Ahora rento un apartamento desde pago $1,200 de renta yo sola. De un mes al otro, mi renta se duplicó y he gastado casi las tres cuartas partes de mis ingresos en renta. I now rent an apartment where I pay $1,200 in rent by myself. For one month, uh, from one month to the next, my rent doubled, and I have I have to spend nearly three fourths of my income on rent. Incluso comprar comida puede ser un desafío, y ocasionalmente me he soltado comidas y he quedado sin comida porque no había suficiente dinero. Even buying food can be a challenge, and I have occasionally skipped meals and gone without food because there wasn't enough money. He tenido que reducir mis gastos. No puedo viajar, no puedo tomar vacaciones y no puedo hacer ninguna actividad de ocio que me brinda alegría. I've had to reduce my other expenses. I can't travel, can't take vacations, and can't do any leisure activities that bring me joy. He trabajado toda mi vida y tengo muchas ganas de jubilarme, pero no sé cuándo podré jubilarme. Porque no tengo dinero ahorrado y no tengo una pensión. I've worked my whole life and I'm looking forward to retirement, 
but I don't know when I can ever retire because I don't have money saved and I do not have a pension. No debería batallar tanto trabajando para una empresa tan rica. Estoy lista para luchar por lo que merezco y no me detendré hasta que hayamos ganado. Díganle a Blackstone que firme un contrato justo para nosotros. I should not have to struggle so much working for such a rich company. I'm ready to fight for what I deserve and I won't stop until we've won. Please tell Blackstone to settle a fair contract for us. Thank you. Morning, commissioners. My name is Anand Singh. I'm the president of Unite Here Local 2. Uh, we're the union of over 15,000 hospitality workers here in San Francisco, San Mateo County, and in the east and the North Bay. Um, 2,500 of our members, of Local 2 members, from seven hotels went out on strike against the Marriott Corporation for over two months back in 2018. San Francisco city and county officials in that time supported our members. Um, they were fighting for the same things that the two women you just heard from were fighting for. Basics, necessities for uh, working people, things like living wages, affordable health care, retirement benefits, a safe and humane workload. We were successful. We won a transformative contract for our members at the end of that strike, and workers returned to their jobs. Let me just say that we may be a different local union here in San Francisco, but there is no space between our organizations. An attack on the workers we just heard from is akin to an attack on San Francisco hotel workers, and we treat it in that way. And so we're asking for your fund support because, A, it's the right thing to do. And I, I challenge anyone who just heard their stories not to believe that. But this fund also has a fiduciary responsibility to mitigate the risks associated with strikes, boycotts, and picket lines. Many of Blackstone's hotel workers are living in poverty. They're unable to afford the rising cost of housing and basic necessities. And in 2019, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the right to adequate housing accused Blackstone of exploiting tenants, wreaking havoc in communities, and helping to fuel a global, a global housing crisis. So we, we request that the fund add an information agenda item to the upcoming September meeting concerning your investments in Blackstone Managed Limited Partnerships and ask the fund not to reinvest with Blackstone until the contract disputes are resolved and Blackstone can guarantee labor peace at its hospitality investments. Thank you very much for your time. Good morning. My name is Laura Perez, and I'm an organizer with Unite Here Local 11 based in Arizona. As you heard from Rosalba, workers at Blackstone-owned hotels are asking for living wages, affordable health care, and a safe and humane workload. In July, Blackstone became the first $1 trillion private equity manager, yet many workers at its hotels still live in poverty. Blackstone's usage of African-American strike breakers at the Aloft and Fairfield hotels has also generated concerns from clergy. On July 18th, Pastor William Smart, president and CEO of the Southern, Cal Southern Christian Leadership Conference of Southern California, wrote to Aloft and Fairfield Hotel Management and Blackstone executives expressing, quote, 
profound concern about your company's commitment to decent labor practices and inclusivity and requesting a meeting to discuss how the hotels can demonstrate respect for the workers they employ and the communities in which they operate. It is particularly concerning that Blackstone Group continues to confront labor concerns given that Blackstone-owned Packer Sanitation Services, Inc. paid a $1.5 million fine in February for employing more than 100 teenagers in jobs at meat packing plants in eight states through a Blackstone fund affiliated with SFers. The children reportedly worked overnight shifts and used hazardous chemicals to clean dangerous meat processing equipment such as brisket saws. 30 seconds remaining. We request that SFers add an, in, add an information agenda item to the upcoming September meeting concerning SFers investment in Blackstone managed limited partnerships and we ask that SFers not reinvest with Blackstone until the contract disputes are resolved and Blackstone can guarantee labor peace as it, at its Southern California and Arizona hospitality investments. Thank you. Thank you. A reminder to callers to press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, we have no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Thank you. Thank you for the presentations. Um, Madam Secretary, do you want to call item number five, please? Yes, item number five, action item, approval of the minutes of the July 2023 retirement board meeting. I move adoption of the minutes as submitted. Thank you. Second. Second. Great. So it's motion's been made by Commissioner Gristle and seconded by Commissioner Thomas. Is there any public comment, Madam Secretary? We have no in-person public comment. Callers, a reminder to press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, we have no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Okay, the motion's been made and seconded. All those in favor say aye. Those opposed say nay. Motion passes, thank you. Madam Secretary, next item. Item number six, action item, consent calendar. Okay, commissioners, everything in the consent calendar is in your packet. There motion to approve or any comments? Move adoption of the consent calendar as submitted. Thank you. Second. Okay, it's been moved and seconded. Moved by Commissioner Driscoll, seconded by Commissioner Connor. Is there any public comment? We have no in-person public comment. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. There are no calls. Public comment is now closed. It's been moved and seconded. Those in favor say aye. Those opposed say nay. Motion passes. Thank you. Call the next item, please. Item number seven, action item, review and acceptance of GRS report, independent actuarial review. Okay.
Good morning, commissioners. The actuarial review is undertaken every five years to have an independent set of eyes look at our actuary's work. Chiron has performed 15 valuations for SFERS, and this is the third review of their work by three different actuarial firms, and it resulted for the third time in a clean report. Of course, there are suggestions for improvement, and Chiron and I will respond with recommendations at the board's November meeting, which will be the same meeting the board will be selecting assumptions for the 2023 actuarial valuation. Danny White and Cassie Rappaport are two members of the GRS team, and they are here to present their findings and answer board questions. And I'd just like to say that it was a very smooth process, and I want to thank GRS for their work. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, members of the board. It's a pleasure to be here today. Um, we, uh, we submitted a very detailed report of an audit that was a review that was conducted over the summer. We have a presentation today, just go over the highlights or summary of those results. If we go to the next slide, please. Um, give you some background information on this. You, you, Chiron, your actuary, provides a lot of very important information in terms of funded status, um, changes in financial condition, and very importantly, the actual determined contribution rate, which once the board certified, that's what the employers actually pay. So it's a very specialized work. It's not always transparent. Uh, a lot of calculations, very complex calculations go in it. So from time to time, it's important to do a review or background. If we go to the next slide, um, actual review or audit, I kind of use those terms synonymously, um, is a process where you retain an outside independent firm to go in and, and review the um, review and actuarial calculations, assumptions on a periodic basis. What we find is your past practice of having reviews every five years is appropriate and probably good governance follows the GFOA guidelines. And I think it, uh, most systems are on a similar type basis in terms of review process. We go to the next slide. Um, in terms of perspective, uh, we go in and we're doing a detailed review uh, we are of, of the calculations and, and the data used and the output, the assumptions for validability, co uh, compliance with the uh, standards of practice, actual standards of practice. But also we try to bring forth some, a new perspective or an outside perspective of um, suggestions of possible improvement or just consideration. And that's that's how I'd put it today is, is when we go through, you're gonna see, a, we'll report a clean audit and just some considerations for Chiron to consider next time, just um, in, in, in industry prevalence of processes. If we go to the next slide, uh, the scope of the review, which Cassie, my associate, will go through in more detail, but we've, we go through, we take the census data that um, SFERS provides uh, Chiron, we get us a, a, a corresponding copy. They do a number of processes. We've replicate or validate those processes and compare results for differences. We review, spend a lot of time reviewing the actuarial assumptions used in the valuation. That's probably the most where there's some give and take, you know, different perspectives and, and most often um, comments of, of suggestions. Also a team go through and does a sample TEF life audit. So what we do is, uh, if you think of an actuarial valuation, we calculate a liability. That liability is the sum of the liability for each member in the system that's due a benefit. And so we request a sample of liability calculations for each member, whether active member or retired. And uh, we compare results using the same assumptions, methodologies and processes, and we should match. 
Uh, so the idea is if you match on a sample basis, then um, things should match in, a, in an aggregate basis if you sample. The other thing is the um, review of the calculations. So we got the liabilities, are they calculating the contribution rates appropriate in accordance with uh, city charter? And then appropriately reflect actual standards of practice, which there are a number, about five or six that apply to uh, performance evaluations. We go to the next slide. Um, this is the big takeaway. And if there's any highlight in here is based on review, the census data, experience study, test life replication, the valuation reports, uh, we believe that the 2022 valuation, which was the scope of the audit, uh, was reasonable and, um, and complies with actual standards of practice. In other words, this was a, considered a clean audit, uh, especially you know, you know, in light of the complexity of the system. And um, you, know, you can rely on it for sound business making decisions. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to my colleague. She'll go over a little more detail of the processes and steps reviewed. All right, thank you and good morning, everybody. Um, next slide, please. So as Danny has mentioned, this was a clean audit. Um, there were no major issues, just a few minor comments, which I'll cover over the next few slides. Um, all of the main components of the report, including the methods and assumptions, the results themselves, as well as the content of the report, we have deemed to be reasonable and in compliance with the actuarial standards of practice. Next slide, please. So as part of the audit, um, we do a review of the evaluation data process. So SFERS provides us with preliminary data files that are also provided to Chiron. Um, and then we also receive the final census data files from Chiron that was actually used in the valuation. Using the preliminary data and information in the report, we reconcile the data on our own and then compare it against the summaries provided by Chiron. So in this table here, we have a summary of the comparison. Um, in the second column, we have the data summary as provided by Chiron. Um, in the next column over, we have our own data that we reconciled um, and then the difference in the column all the way to the right. So as you can see, the differences are very minor, um, could be due to additional information that Chiron had that, that we did not. Um, but overall, we consider the data to be both reasonable and valid for evaluation purposes. Next slide, please. So in addition to reviewing the valuation data process, we also wanna look at the calculation of the liabilities. Um, so we requested 51 sample lives. Um, as you all know, there's quite a few plans uh, that are part of SFERS. So we wanted to make sure we were covering all of them and getting a good idea um, of the calculations for both active members and then inactive members who are receiving benefits. Um, so it's important to make sure that the benefits and assumptions are being correctly and that liabilities are being calculated correctly on an individual basis. Um, so using the assumptions and plan provisions, um, you know, plan provision summaries, we did calculate our own liabilities and compared those to the ones we received from Chiron. So we have a couple of tables here summarizing those. Um, again, the column all the way to the right has the percent difference. And overall, we concluded that the liability calculations were reasonable. Slide, please. So here we have some additional information on the investment return analysis that we did. Um, currently, the investment return assumption is 7.2%. Um, so we looked at a few things here as of 2022. We looked at the expected return, as well as the probability of exceeding that 7.2% return assumption. 
Um, and we use the asset allocations provided by SFERS, as well as um, capital market assumptions from 11 different investment consultants. So as of 2022, the expected return was about 6% over the next seven to 10 years and 7.1% over the next 20 to 30 years. The probability of exceeding 7.2% was about 39% over the next seven to 10 years and 49% over the next 20 to 30 years. So I do wanna mention, of course, this audit was based on the 2022 valuation. So it was this analysis. Um, GRS does consider 7.2% to be on the higher, you know, the upper limit of the reasonable range for the investment return assumption. However, forward-looking expectations did increase for 2023, so it should be easier to support this 7.2% assumption moving forward. We just recommend, you know, you continue to monitor the assumption, which I'm sure Chiron, you know, will do. If I give one other comment, I do want to commend the retirement system on their process of reviewing the economic assumptions each year. That is not common in large public retirement systems. So um, I think that provides additional prudence, you know, and, and shows the responsibility this board has of the system. So I we want to commend you for that. All right, next slide, please. So as I mentioned previously, we just had a few minor comments while going through the experience study evaluation reports. Um, our recommendations are for the next experience study. Um, we recommend that Chiron consider a salary or amount-weighted approach in setting both the termination and retirement rates. Um, this can help to minimize the gains and losses that SFERS sees from year to year. Um, additionally, we noticed that some of the termination assumptions were based on five years of experience, and for some plans, they were based on 10 years of experience. We would just recommend using 10 years of experience for all plans across the board. Um, we also find that females tend to have higher rates of termination than males, so it may be reviewing the termination assumption on a gender basis. And as I mentioned in the last slide, we would just continue to monitor the appropriateness of that 7.2% investment return assumption. Again, these are very minor. Yes. In the grand scheme of things and all the complexity of the calculations, these are, we would consider these very minor suggestions. And these are, in fact, suggestions for consideration. Yeah. So I think I think it's important at this point to give a shout out to our actuarial director, Ms. Brazelton, who leads this cause, and also to um, the staff to, for putting this together and supporting Please. And next slide, please. Um, so we do want to say thank you for the opportunity to work on this audit. Thank you to the SFERS staff and um, Chiron for uh, their assistance and cooperation with this audit. We feel that very smoothly. So thank you. Thank you. We'll open up any questions or discussion, please. I have two questions. I want to understand the, um, you said the word minor. I have to figure out how significant the minor is in terms of page 10 which is one of the relates to one of the suggestions you had uh, this question actually may be directed more at Jeanette this change on using the salary or amount weighted approach how significant is that I'll be happy to comment it's you don't know until you look at it and so you think of one way is um, and this is a process that we've identified. I think it depends on the system. So I, you know, to quantify it would be hard to say, but 
if you look at it this way, the current process, you're counting noses. They're counting bodies, uh, you know, when, when they leave and stuff. But the other one, the, the suggested alternative approach is look at it on a salary weighted basis. You think a turnover, you know, turnover typically occurs more in lower paid positions than higher paid positions. And you think on a liability weighted basis, since your, your benefit is a function of final average pay, you have higher paid, higher liability on the associate. So is there a different, so is that, you know, are you trying, so the goal is, is minimize liability gains and losses versus on a headcount basis. That's, that's kind of the fundamental uh, concept behind the suggestion. So, to, to, but to answer your direct question of how serious is this without looking at it, I don't, couldn't quantify. It may have no effect. Uh, only because the other table where you have all the spreads is on pages 27, 28. I see a lot of negative numbers, but when it added all together, it's almost insignificant. It could be, right. Uh, but there's, a, you know, the other thing we've, I mean, economic times have changed so much over the years, but um, okay. But again, I come, in, I come in the process. On this point, uh, now we'll ask the question, is this a point worth discussing with Chiron? Do you think they'll resist or agree or how much more work's involved? We'll be discussing. We will be discussing this with Chiron and they will be able to go back to their demographic study that they did five years ago and the one that they did 10 years ago and they'll be able to let to answer your question. And we will be answering that question in November. Okay, they have a desire to be as accurate as possible too to minimize Gains and yes, and I, I consider all of these suggestions worthy. The second question really has to do with page 29. I'm trying to understand the significance of the last paragraph. I can't tell if, I won't say you discovered a mistake, but it sounds like what happened on page 42. The process was right, but the answer was correct, and the process was wrong, but the answer was right. I just want to understand that paragraph. Yeah, so it goes with the, um, there was a calculation. You have a schedule with amortization basis in, uh, in the report. And if you were to go through on that table, that table didn't foot or tie when you had the individual amounts. When we go, went through and compared last year's report to understand the difference, we went to last year's report, brought it forward, and what we thought should have been looked at in that line, um, when we put in, I, I, I believe it's an honest misreference where they show a total amount instead of the annual amount outstanding for the year. And so when you correct that line item and then you sum for the total, the total ties to what's in the report and it also ties to what we expect or what, what we believe should be in that report too. Okay. Thanks for that answer. Appreciate it. Got it. Okay. Any other questions? Let's thank you very much. Janet, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Would be a motion to accept the report? Please. I make a motion to accept the, re the report of the uh, Abrel Rotor and Smith Company as independent actual review. Second. Second. Great. It's been. This is a discussion item, right? This is an action item. Okay, then let's have, and we need to have public comment. 
Do we have any in-person public comment? Seeing none, a reminder to callers to press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, are there any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you, hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Okay, it's been moved and seconded. Moved by Commissioner Driscoll, seconded by Commissioner Thomas. We have a roll call vote. Oh, by Connor. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, Tim. So, Connor. You want a roll call vote? Yeah. Yes, I do. Commissioner O'Connor? Aye. Mr. Thomas? Aye. President Helfon? Aye. Mr. Driscoll? Aye. Mr. Gandhi? Aye. And Commissioner Bridges? Aye. Thank you. We have six ayes. Motion passes. Thank you. Thank you. So item number eight is not. Item not used, item eight. Is not being used, right? Item number nine, discussion item, chief executive officer's report. If I may, I'll go ahead and kick off this discussion. Um, the comments today will be in two broad areas. One, uh, board related topics and second, uh, administration related topics. So first on the board related topics, I had shared uh, with all of you a board education uh, survey uh, to do our board education assessment. Um, many of you responded, uh, but I don't have everybody's response. So I would appreciate uh, uh, those that haven't responded to, to go ahead and do so, so that uh, I have a consistent view of everybody's educational needs uh, and we can work with the governance committee to put a plan in place. Um, next uh, on board topics, committee schedule. We talked a lot in the last um, board meeting about the process of setting up committee meetings for the year. Um, we've reached out to each of the committee chairs. Thank you for um, in engaging in that discussion and have um, identified a set of proposed dates. Um, we have to, to sort of schedule these meetings holistically. So while we wanna work with each individual chair and each committee's schedule, we need to take into account all of the committees and the board meetings, your busy schedules, our team's busy, busy schedules and get something that is regular and on the calendar. And that is very much consistent with our policy. So to help in that effort, uh, I, I've shared with all of you um, uh, to confirm your availability for the dates that that um, have sort of come together and emerge in our discussions with chair, the chair, and I seek your feedback on uh, willingness to do uh, more than one committee meeting on a day or do a committee meeting and a board meeting on a day because um, again, we can, we can accommodate only so much, but in some cases um, um, we may want to pull these levers and I want to know uh, willingness to do so. Um, also, um, we do have the proposed dates, so if you could confirm uh, for us if the ones that we have proposed work for you for the committees that you're on, that would be uh, extremely helpful. Again, we want to be respectful of your time and the, the tack that we've taken here is in working with the committee chairs. Anything that's going to be in a committee, these are really important items that are either required or, um, for instance, in the IC meeting, part of the actuarial liability study that require a deep dive. So we don't have a lot of extraneous things here. Um, and uh, this is important work, and I appreciate your support in that. So please do uh, complete that, that survey. And as a heads up, 
per policy next board meeting, um, the each of the chairs uh, is responsible for making what's uh, in the board policy a presentation on the goals and the schedule for the year. I will work on putting together those materials based on the discussions that I've had with the, the chairs, uh, but get that to you for, for your review. It will be relatively straightforward. Next on administrative uh, topics. Um, our team is working very hard, led by Karen, uh, to uh, develop um, uh, FAQs, communication, and implement the changes uh, with respect to the purchase of military service. This is a complex process. Um, uh, military service is different than and public service, and we have to address those complexities, and we have to do that in compliance with admin code and our policies. So we are working diligently. There will be more to come, and we will come before the board to uh, amend our policy, but please know that that hard work is, is underway. And we have received requests for uh, the forums to apply for that service, and we have responded to those requests. Uh, finally, on the administrative side, we've included in the materials our retirement services dashboard, and I turn it over to Karen to, to walk through. Commissioners, as you know, every quarter we provide a retirement services dashboard that gives you a high level uh, information on what the team there has been doing. Um, you've had that before you. I did want to let you know that we are in the process of refining what we're going to be reporting to you um, with respect to our disability cases. Uh, working with the city attorney's office, they've made some good recommendations on how we can let you know a lot better where the cases stand, not just what applications are pending, but where they stand. Are they, do we have the information? Is it waiting for hearing? Um, I, I, I know over the years that many of you have um, expressed an interest in that kind of uh, statistic. So I just wanted to let you know that in the next report, um, we will be providing you with that information. And I'm happy to answer any questions. Three questions. The site visits count separate from overlapping with what is done with the deferred comp. They do their own dashboard. This is does not include. Okay, good. Um, Secondly, uh, it's good to see the registration count is high versus the total number of members. I don't know if you want to add the total number of members or just put in the percentage. How many of our members are actually registered on the website? And we can we can we can clarify that for you. Part three goes back to the first part about meetings. For committee meetings, does remote access rules still? And we still do it remotely for committees, but not the full the full board meeting. They have to be in person. There are a few more exceptions for committees than there are for the full board, but but the rules are that we are back in person. So the answer is no. Right. Okay. Thank you. Claire. But for for everybody's edification, how long's the list of the ex, uh, exceptions? Not very long. I mean, I think there there's um, there might be a, uh, there's one for example, contagious illness. You can be absent twice a year for committee for that purpose, but if not for the full board, you'd have to just take the absence. So not very long and, and they are can we have, rare. Can we, we just a memo to the board members so that they know um, they've got a conflict or whatever, whether it fits within an exception? Just you did circulate a memo, but I will resend it. Yes. <laughs> I didn't read the memo. <laughs> yeah, so we'll, we'll, I'll send it again. And now this is an important legal question because I get phone calls regarding the military service 
and I know it's confusing for a bunch of reasons. People are going understandably crazy trying to get the answers for page two. My question is now that the benefit exists or the right to claim the benefit exists, it can still take many, many months to get this done. If someone were to retire today saying, hey, look at I want it, but I can't get the paperwork in because beyond my control, would we recognize that they would get the benefit? Under the admin code in the charter, the purchase has to be complete before retirement. Yeah, well, the person's ready to retire and pay for it now, but it's our process that is combination our process and the federal process that is impeding their, they're ready, willing to pay and everything. I, I, I would have to consult with the city attorney. I, don't I mean, it's a dicey issue. A legal call in the middle of a meeting, not knowing the full facts. Right, we need to, we, we'd have to look into that. Right. Okay, okay, it'll come up again. Thank you. Any other questions? Hey, any other questions on this, on the report? I, I just want to point out one thing that um, I know from my discussions with the, our CEO, and she's the important thing about on-site visits, and this would apply to your, your group, uh, is a definite point to consider in any real estate move or whatever that we're looking at. And, um, improvement to access is important. So that's a top list item. Any further comments? It's a discussion item. We'll do public comment. We don't do public comment, that's right. Do you want to, shall we call the next item? We need public comment. We do not. We'll do public comment. Do we have any in-house public comment? See none. A reminder to any callers to press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, we have no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Okay, so just to set the time thing, um, we'll break at um, 12.30 or whenever we, we can close around that time. I'm going to use this as a practice session because as you all, my fellow board members, we're looking at the, the scheduling of all the committees and the boards and there's a possible, and, and the, the premises, we might have these all uh, meeting in the morning and a meeting in the afternoon. So let's get practice. I'm going to give apology that we might be eating at the meeting, the commissioners, but not to hold up everybody sitting there while we're out having lunch. And um, Sonia, that's that's just, not, but let's turn it over to Diane. Item number 10, discussion item, San Francisco Deferred Compensation Plan Quarterly Report, Q2-23. Thank you, Ms. Armanito. Um, Diane Tree Justin for the SFDCP, and uh, thank you, Vice President Helfand. We will make sure that we conclude by 1230. Did I get demoted? And then he's oh, president. Excuse me, I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> I, I missed really the last meeting. I forward to that. That was great. Uh, <laughs> president Helfand, excuse me. Um, well, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, we are presenting our quarterly report, which covers the four main pillars of the plan, investments, marketing, operations, and the record keeper. Um, up first is our investments pillar. And um, if Darlene can promote the quarterly activity report, um, the one before this one, the quarterly board report, sorry. 
and I will. It's the other one. Um, so while she's working on that, I uh, just want to provide a brief overview. So as mentioned in my report last month, we had a smooth transition to T. Rowe Price as our target date fund manager. Most of the target date fund vintages are currently at their target allocation, and we'll be meeting with the Deferred Compensation Committee to discuss uh, tactical asset allocation requirements uh, uh, later this year. Also mentioned is the 22 BIPs jump for our stable value crediting rate, which is now at 2.9%, which is guaranteed for Q3. Thank you, Ms. Armanino. Um, Greg Ungerman is also here from Callan, who is our investment consultant. And I've asked him to share a few thoughts on last quarter's performance as shown on the attached activity report and being promoted right now by Ms. Armanino. Next month, he'll be reporting out on the performance for the first half of 2023. But as this is a quarterly report, we're going to talk about Q2. So, Greg, please begin. Yeah, good afternoon, everyone. I'll make my comments very brief uh, on this one pager. I always start really with the target date funds on the bottom because they really express the beauty of the plan. All the underlying uh, funds that you offer participants uh, make up the target date funds. And you'll see both in the quarter and the year-to-date column uh, they're outperforming their various benchmarks. So I know from a starting place, that's a, a very good sign, both in relative terms, but you'll note the absolute returns have been quite strong. Uh, year to date, you'll see uh, that the, um, the most recent uh, re retirement fund, that's the most conservative one, up almost 6% uh, for the year to date, with the longer dated funds up over 10%. And I think that I'd leave you with the one comment that we've Last year, we saw a big shift of value, outperforming growth, and now in 2023, growth has vastly outperformed value. So we're seeing big shifts uh, in style within particularly the U.S. market, really led by five companies, uh, the big five companies, Apple, Microsoft, NVIDIA, Amazon, and Meta, or, or Facebook. Um, so those phenomenons continue with volatility as the capital markets digest uh, inflation and the Fed funds rate. I'll stop there and see if there's any questions. I'll send you my question regards the large cap growth later. That's good. Thank you. Okay, commissioners, moving on to marketing. As noted in the memo before you, we've outlined all the features from our most recent target date fund campaign. That includes the advanced notification, spe special messages for safety employees, our live presentation and webinars, microsites, and other evergreen target date fund messaging. I believe I mentioned our stellar open rates and click-through rates um, last month, and our participant engagement is very encouraging as we approach National Retirement Security Month in October. This year, we have a rather catchy theme. Um, do you have retirement FOMO? <laughs> do you have retirement FOMO? F-O-M-O. So this is a rather uh, a clever use of the FOMO acronym, which is fear of missing out. It appears to be more mainstream these days and also sends a clear message that you don't want to be left behind. So positioning will be using peer comparisons to prompt actions. So for instance, 
60% of CCSF employees are participating in the SFDCP and they're maximizing their retirement benefits. Are you missing out? Or 70% have registered their SFDCP account online, protecting them from cyber attacks. Are you missing out? Are you protected? So we look forward to developing this year's campaign and hope we can win another PSCA award like we did last year uh, for our, our last NRSM campaign. And then finally, I want to share with the uh, board our SFDCP insert that was included in the recent SFRS annual statement mailing. It is the last attachment in the DC item. We always get a boost of activity as a result of this mailing, and that really dovetails nicely into the October NSRM. If there are no questions on the marketing front, I'd like to move on to operations. I had a question. You said, did you say 60% of CCSF employees participate in deferred comp? Correct. Have you looked at that data and based on income? Is there any correlation between sort of like lower income folks are less likely to participate or higher income or is it is that not relevant? No, it is very, that's a very, very good point. In fact, we we, de we definitely look at the demographics when we're doing targeted messaging. So we can certainly divvy up the data and present you know, the salary ranges for participation in the plan. So if that is of interest to the board, we can certainly report out on that at an upcoming committee meeting, but we do have that data so that we can identify higher earners. And in fact, that's a very, very good point because we're going right into Secure 2.0 where we will actually be identifying the higher earners. So, okay. So that actually moves very nicely for operations. Uh, wanted to provide an update to the board with regards to Secure 2.0. So we are closely monitoring and preparing for all the provisions related to Secure 2.0. Some of those details can be found on page seven in the memo before you, but in short, the, the most famous or rather most infamous provision is section 603. And this is also known as the 145k Roth age 50 catch-up requirement. I don't want to bore the committee, but I the board, but I do feel that maybe a brief overview on this provision is is, is helpful. Um, so section 603 basically means that any participant who makes more than $145,000 in FICA wages from the city will be required to make Roth contributions if they take advantage of the age 50 catch-up amount. So um, the IRS sets annual limits for uh, qualified plans. And I believe this year it is 22,500. So when you are over age 50, you are allowed a catch-up contribution. That amount this year is 7,500. What this provision means as part of Secure 2.0 is that if you wanted to maximize your contributions and contribute another 7,500 to the plan, those contributions must be Roth. Now you have a choice. You can either do pre-tax or you can do Roth. But as part of Secure 2.0 being a rather large revenue generator, um, they have required now the catch-up contributions for the higher earners which they have identified as 145K plus to make only Roth contributions. So how do we do this? 
there would be a look back at the prior year and we would be working with our payroll department to ascertain the amount of wages the city has paid an individual based on their W-2. After identifying those who've earned more than 145K, we would flag them with an RCR. An RCR is the Roth catch-up required. It's an indicator that would default any age 50 catch-up amounts into Roth. Participants will still have only one account, but the contributions will be earmarked and accounted as pre-tax versus Roth. We currently do that now um, for pre-tax and Roth and also rollover funds because rollover funds have to be accounted separately because there's special requirements for 401k money as opposed to 457 money, which is what the SFDCP plan is. So I know that's a lot. I, I wanted to pause and see if there's any questions there before I go into sort of what we're doing now as a result of this. So there's been a lot of industry pushback, both public and private, in administering you know, these, this mandatory provision. There is a lot of administrative effort and a relatively short period because we're looking at completing this by year end. Um, our plan is positioned at, at rather neutrally because we actually already have Roth. So it's just a matter of working with our payroll team and our record keeper to funnel the catch-up contributions into the Roth category. But I want to share with the board that there have been at least five letters sent to Congress, the Treasury Department, and the IRS to request an extension for at least two years. Um, as mentioned earlier, this is a huge tax revenue generator. And so to my understanding, and Mr. Bishop Bastien can talk about it as well, he is closer connected um, on the record keeping side, and they've been monitoring this very, very closely as well, that extension talks have been remote at, at best. Um, so as such, staff is preparing under the assumption that this provision will hold and will go into effect next year. So as mentioned, we're currently working with Voya, our record keeper, as well as the controller's office to analyze our options and compliance. We've already had a kickoff meeting with the key stakeholders and the payroll division is currently working with SFRS IT to scope out the project and the business requirements because we would have to reprogram files that go back and forth between the city and VOIA to make sure we capture the RCR, which is the indicator, and making sure that the payroll uh, division has insight into the FICA wages. So there's a lot of logistical things that I don't wanna bore the board, but to give you an example on the logistics that needs to be sort of flushed out is the payroll office has said they don't get the W-2s out until mid-January. This provision goes into effect January 1st. So there's things like that that we're trying to go through. We're also looking back to see, well, you know, when does that year start, right? Is there a prior year? Do we work with the, the, the board? Do we, do we um, delay contributions, you know, for the age 50 catch-ups to later on in the year after we've ascertained the wage amounts? There are a lot of logistics that have been really keeping us busy and up, up at night, actually, trying to figure this out. Um, but our intention is to always allow participants to save the maximum they desire, right? And so we're just trying to make sure that we can stay qualified under the laws. 
We already have a draft letter in place to our participants, as well as FAQs um, of these changes. And our counselors also have talking points. Um, as mentioned earlier this year, when Secure 2.0 was first signed into law, we would implement the mandatory provisions first and then consider whether to recommend the optional provisions to the Deferred Compensation Committee and then to the board. Um, plan document changes are not required until January of 2028 for government plans. So the idea would be for us to implement all the things and then capture them uh, in the plan document. And that includes both the CARES Act and Secure 1.0 as well. And one last thing, just to make sure that the board is, is, is fully aware with uh, Section 6.603. Um, as, as part of that legislation, there was also a technical error. Um, they, in, in including the 145K uh, wage limit or wage bottom, I guess, um, they had inadvertently removed a clause about age 50 catch-ups entirely. So this actually means that if that is not fixed or put back in, it would theoretically be unlawful to even allow age 50 catch-ups in 2024. Now, I've talked to my colleagues. The extension is remote at best, but you can be sure that they are working to make sure that that correction is made. So at that time, maybe I can stop since we're talking about that. Greg, did you want to share any thoughts? Or Bishop, did you want to share any thoughts on Secure 2.0? No, you, you accurately described it. And the catch-up provision, as I understand, is going through technical corrections now. So that will be added back. Yeah, and that's that's my understanding as well. As well. But I guess my concern is because it is remote and because, and I don't know the status of what committee is working on at this point, I'm wondering how they're going to the, the last part you talked about, how they're going to make a correction prior to it going into effect, because there are too many moving parts, and most times the government not get that part right. Yeah, that, that is a part that they are, um, that they, it, it was a complete error. They've all acknowledged it, and that is not a, um, uh, a subject of confrontation. Right. 603, uh, Ms. Chewy Justin talked about, right is a big revenue raiser and that, that there's just it's very hard to change a law that's already been signed by that's the my that's my concern yeah that that portion we don't believe is going to get deferred everybody's hoping um but those are two separate right and i've been following it closely but my concern is is once it goes into effect how you do how you do the backfill and as you say you you can prepare for it but how do you actually get it right Yeah, and maybe I'll let my colleague from VOYA um, talk about sure. that. Thank you. I, I think the question of getting it right is what's keeping all of us up late at night, right? Um, there's a little bit of inertia out there, right? You have plan sponsors who don't want to look at this right now. Right. 
You have payroll providers who are kind of kicking the can down the road a little bit as well in some instances. And then you have consultants and brokers and others that are at the table. And I think that there's a, a large mass of people that are banking on a delay. Yes. However, the key for us and for our communications has always been to try to encourage people to comply and be ready to comply. In fact, I just had a conversation with a plan sponsor this morning, which has been kind of kicking the can down the road. And I said, okay, feel good to do that if you'd like, but to be prepared and assuming it goes online, let's look at these various steps. And I think, you know, to applaud your plan, your plan is doing that. There have been active communications with the controller's office and others to make sure you're in compliance. So I, I feel good about where you're at. I, I hesitatingly say I, there are others I'm a little concerned about, but in your case, I feel pretty good. I think we're in, on a good track. Right, if you could just let us know, because I'm just curious on how the, the whole legislative process will move forward at this point. We will certainly keep the board apprised um, at the next board meeting as well as the DCC. Okay. Um, any communications that we would roll out, we would definitely share with the DCC as well in advance. Are there any known lobbyists working against this? Working, do you know? No. Uh, you mean against extension? None that I'm against aware of. Against extension or extension? extension. Um, not that I'm aware of. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. My question, I want to clarify something you said at the end there. You said only the age 50 ketchup. Yes. Is it both or just the age 50 ketchup? Age 50 ketchup. So the special ketchup doesn't change. Right. Okay. That's why it's very confusing <laughs> because the Roth requirement only applies to age 50 and special ketchup isn't even, because that's only for government plans. That's in a separate section. So the removal of 603 doesn't apply to special ketchup. So people who want to catch up special ketchup today, yes. 20, they can do it. They could. In 24, they can do it as well, the way the law is written now. Yes. Okay, good. That's correct. I'm glad to hear the inertia problem in Washington didn't affect everything. Uh, actually, I might add to Commissioner Driscoll, that's one of the sole issues that has you know, some inertia. There's been a letter by Congress to Treasury and to the IRS indicating that that was an inadvertent change. So that, that has more attention, I think, at this point than delay. And the... Three-year rule on the special ketchup doesn't get it affected, so that wasn't worry about that. How the special ketchup, even if it gets delayed and retroactively fixed, people still have time to catch up on any un uncontributed amounts as well. So there's a lot of flexibility. I'm just there's always that exception to things will work out. People who are going to retire next year, who uh, if the law does not changed, they're going to be negatively affected. That's the exception I always worry about. So, but basically, that will work to us over the next couple of years. Thank you. Okay, excellent. So President Helfan, uh, I want to be mindful of time. Uh, it is 1229. We have just a few more minutes if you would indulge us. No worries. Okay, okay, thank you. Um, so if there are no more questions on Secure 2.0 and operations, I'd like to move on to um, the record keeper. So this is our last pillar. Um, as noted again in the memo before you, we've had some recent enhancements through VOIA, um, including a new look and feel of the dashboard post-login. There's an image of that for you in the memo, as well as the new Hire Through Retire podcast. So I'm an avid podcast, podcast listener myself, so I'm, I'm rather curious. I look forward to hearing these different perspectives uh, from DC experts through this Hire, Hire Through Retire podcast, and we will certainly uh, keep the board um, briefed on that as well. I also wanted to provide a, a personnel update 
on the uh, uh, record keeper front. So we have recently onboarded a new SFDCP counselor with a name you might recognize. Uh, his name is Chris Wisdom, and he had previously worked in the SFRS investments area. He is coming over to the SFDCP participant facing side. We are delighted to have him. Chris has a passion for helping others. He has emergency teaching credentials and cannot wait to help CCSF employees enroll and maximize their SFDCP benefits. So Mr. Wisdom is currently getting licensed and he will be shadowing um, our counselors to get a lay of the land and to be introduced to the other city departments and their gatekeepers. In addition, the plan uh, will also benefit from additional counselor coverage. Uh, this is going to be provided by Voya's floating counselors. Uh, Mr. Bishop Pastine can give a little bit more details as well. These are folks that do not have an assigned plan. So for us, we have five assigned SFDCP counselors. Voya also maintains um, employees who don't have one, but they provide and travel to provide coverage as needed. So examples on when these folks would be there would be in-person seminars, or benefit fairs, like the ones that are coming up in October, uh, to provide participant assistance. Uh, we look forward to reporting out on any increased activity as a result of these additional efforts. Mr. Bestine, did you want to share any other thoughts on the floating counselors? No, to, to build on Diane's comment, I think having an additional resource that we can tap into time to time, especially if someone is out on vacation, you know, that allows us to not skip a beat or at least adjust and shift meetings over to that counselor to assist. So we're looking forward to having them come in, help out and help us maintain our service goals and objectives as well. Okay. Thank you. And that concludes the memo portion. We do have a board overview deck that has been attached to this presentation that goes over more of the metrics. So it goes over demographics, cash inflows, outflows, as well as other like counselor activity. Is this something that the president would like us to share? We can uh, provide a five minute overview if that is your pleasure or uh, how would you like to proceed? Well, uh, make a short presentation. The work went into it, and I think everybody's inter interested. And let's let's take a few minutes. Thank you, Mr. Bestine. Thank you. Uh, thank you, commissioners. And since I'm truly standing between you and lunch, I will be quick. Um, just a couple quick things to point out. Uh, the, the board report does reflect an increase in overall number of accounts for the quarter. We did see just short of 250 accounts added during the quarter. And this is the fifth straight quarter that we've seen account increasing or account growth, I should say, within the, the quarter itself. Additionally, the plan experienced an increase in overall plan assets uh, due to the positive market activity that Mr. Ungerman mentioned earlier. Um, proud to say that although the increase wasn't as much as the prior quarter, we did see an increase of just over 5%, bringing the total plan assets to $4.7 billion overall. Um, I'll skip down just to talk just real briefly about the counselors since we talked about that a little bit as well. Um, the counselor activity it was a little bit less if you looked at it quarter to quarter 
uh, for them. One-on-one uh, -on -one activity, uh, group meeting or virtual meetings were down just slightly. In-group meetings, in-person group meetings were up, however. So we're happy to have Chris come on board, help us to fill that gap, also using the extra resources that we have to increase the numbers as we go through the rest of the summer and into the fall. We do expect heightened activity in October. As Diane said, the National Retirement Security Month activities will kick off, and that is always a big month for us, and look forward to that activity as well. And with that, I'd take any questions you might have if you have any. It's not a question, but our next Deferred Comp Committee meeting is in October. The information correction income replacement ratio numbers on approximately page 32. Thanks for putting it there. That's something I will definitely want to discuss thoroughly at the committee meeting. Thank you. Thank you. That's noted. Great. Thank you. Well, thank you. <clears throat> yeah, the DC committee is actually a, a great um, role model for the other committees to get and how much work you guys do in that committee and really appreciate it. And we appreciate all the help our advisors give. Any questions? Comments? None? Discussion item? Um, public comment? Thank you. Do we have the in-house public comment? Seeing none, a reminder to any callers to press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, we have no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Okay, so let's take uh, a 20-minute break. Okay. Move to recess. Thanks. Did you know? TV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
Madam Secretary, we want to call the next item, please, I think is item 11. Item number 11, discussion item, private equity annual update. Just say a couple introductory remarks. Um, the teams presenting here today are uh, private equity and the next agenda item will be uh, real assets. Um, as I stated in prior board meetings, when we did these asset class deep dive reviews, um, these reviews are incredibly important and it's a monitoring mechanism for you, the board, um, and, and an opportunity to discuss what are truly board investment level topics. It's about how we construct the portfolio, how we manage exposures, establish pacing, set priorities, and deploy capital to drive returns. And, um, and we do that with this discussion much more so than any individual investment decision. So I look forward, I know the teams work very hard on these presentations. I look forward to the discussion and to your questions. So with that, I'll turn it over to Tanya. Thank you, Allison. Good afternoon, commissioners. Uh, very pleased to present our annual update to the board on our private equity portfolio. Before we go into the details, I wanted to highlight and reintroduce our private equity team. So to my left, we have Ed Comerford and Rishi Garbron. Uh, Ed joined us almost nine years ago now. Uh, first to work on the real assets portfolio, was promoted to director, and about three years ago, joined private equity team. Rishi joined us about two years ago. Uh, he has over 15 years of private equity experience and half of that on the direct investment side. Very happy to have him. Uh, Cynthia Wong uh, rounds up our buyout team, and uh, she's been at Spurs for over 20 years now. So these folks spend most of their time on our buyout type opportunities. Good to see everybody in person. Yeah, happy to be here. Uh, Justin Lowe and Giada too, uh, they're our venture and growth team. Uh, Justin has been with us for almost 11 years now, working exclusively on our venture and growth portfolio. And Giada has been here for almost three years now, and she joined us as an investment officer and was recently promoted to associate portfolio manager. And last but not least, I'm very happy to announce that we have a new addition to the team uh, who joined us on Monday. Uh, Lu Chang, Lu, can you wave over there? She uh, joined us from a family office on the East Coast. She has eight years of uh, experience working on alternative investments. So we're happy, very happy to have her on board. So as you can see, very senior experienced team with many years of experience in private equity. So this is what we have for you today. Uh, our team uh, will work you through our own portfolio what happened in 2022, highlights our performance, positioning. Uh, we'll talk about our co-investment um, portfolio, and we'll give you an update what, what we set out to achieve in 2022 and uh, what we expect to achieve in 2023. And then Anita Inc. with Cambridge Associates, um, they, she will give you uh, an overview of what actually happened in the markets during that time. So 2022 uh, was a really tough year for all risk assets across the board. Despite a very challenging year, uh, you know, S&P 500 was down 18%, NASDAQ was down over 30%, even bonds were down. Uh, our portfolio held up relatively well. Uh, we were down uh, 12%, uh, but we outperformed our policy benchmark by 340 basis points. Um, it seems like Q2 of last year uh, was the toughest quarter for our managers. We took a lot of write downs, uh, but after that, things have stabilized quite a bit. And Q1 of this year is expected, well, Q1 of this year is positive. We're roughly flat, one up percent. 
Uh, despite a very challenging 2022, uh, the long-term performance for our portfolio remains very strong and that we created roughly $10 billion since inception of the program in 1987. As of December of 2022, um, our portfolio was roughly 30% of total plan assets. So we remain above the target, uh, our long-term 23% target. And it's largely driven by two considerations. Uh, number one, the portfolio has done extremely well. Over the last three years, the portfolio appreciated $4 billion. So that's one consideration. The other one is, as you are well aware, uh, 2022, public markets sold off, so we've been hit by the denominator effect as well. Uh, we estimate that uh, the second quarter of last year, uh, we were at the maximum of our exposure at 33%, and since then, as our public equities portfolio has rebounded, we have been improving. Uh, so you'll see in your CIO report this year, uh, this month, uh, we're currently at 29%, so within the ranges. Uh, liquidity was incredibly challenging during 2022. Uh, IPO markets were completely shut. Uh, M&A activity was not happening. Uh, despite that, our 10 billion portfolio remained cash flow neutral, which is a great achievement. Um, and then our team continued to work really hard deploying capital. Uh, our target was billion two. We deployed roughly a billion uh, across various uh, private equity strategies. So within private equity, nothing worked, uh, but diversification helped. Our buyout portfolio was only down roughly 2%. Venture portfolio was down 20%. Uh, within the buyout portfolio, it, it, it's interesting. Most of the markdowns were reflective of the valuation multiples because as reported by our general partners, actually underlying performance, companies continued to perform, grow revenue and EBITDA. On the venture side, it's slightly different story. Uh, our portfolio, our venture portfolio uh, is a mature portfolio and a lot of companies are ready to go public, ready to produce liquidity uh, and that didn't happen. And those are types of companies, more mature companies, they tend to be valued, you know, based on market comps. So that was that. Another interesting data point, uh, during 2021, our public exposure within the venture portfolio ranged from 20 to 30 percent. Uh, and you all know what happened to NASDAQ in 2022, right, down 30 plus percent. So that was impacting our portfolio as well. Uh, all geographies were down, uh, but diversification helped. Uh, our Asia-Pacific portfolio, Asia portfolio was down the least at 6%, and U.S. portfolio was down the most, uh, reflecting our uh, venture and growth exposures. During time of volatility, it's incredibly important to maintain long-term strategic focus, particularly for an asset class like private equity, where investment decisions we're making today uh, we'll see the fruit of those decisions in five, seven years from now. It's incredibly challenging to type the markets, so our best defense is diversification and consistent capital deployment. Uh, the long-term themes we're pursuing in our portfolio are growth and innovation, and you'll see it in our portfolio with our weights uh, to venture and growth type of opportunities, our exposure to Asia, our exposure to technology, and now growing exposure to healthcare type of opportunities. 
Uh, we're very comfortable as a team with our long-term positioning of the portfolio, but I wanted to assure you that the team is monitoring, debating all of these tilts all the time. Uh, and right now there are multiple research initiatives that are happening and just a few to highlight. Uh, we're doing research uh, on Europe. Uh, we're doing research on parts of Asia uh, and definitely looking to grow our healthcare exposure. And definitely these top-down views will shape our portfolio over time, but we're committed to remaining opportunistic and pursuing the best opportunities, the best managers across uh, geographies and strategies. Uh, I'll go through the next few slides very quickly. Just to remind you, the role of private equity in our overall plant portfolio is the growth engine. Uh, we want to deliver returns. We target over the full cycle, 12 to 14%. It was the goal to outperforming public markets and earn illiquidity premium. And that's reflected in our benchmark, which is a public index plus 300 basis points of illiquidity premium. And our portfolio has earned that. Uh, the key strategies in the portfolio are venture capital, buyouts, and gross capital. Uh, again, during type of dislocations, it's incredibly important to go back and revisit what do you believe as a private equity investor. And we know private equity is very cyclical. So what we experienced in 2022, when we're down, we experienced, um, you know, in 2021 when we were up 30%. So we know to expect that. Uh, we also know uh, that private markets are extremely inefficient. And that's uh, manifest itself in a huge dispersion of returns in private markets. Sometimes it could be thousands of basis points between top performing managers and uh, median performing managers. And our job as a team is to go find those managers and create access for San Francisco. So we're opportunistic pursuing managers, but we're also managing a portfolio. And when we're managing a portfolio program, it's incredibly important to maintain the long-term horizon, consistent pacing, and vintage diversification. This is what makes and breaks a private equity program. If we were deploying capital during the high valuation environment in 2021, we absolutely should continue deploying capital right now as valuations have come down. And I'm incredibly proud of our private equity team it was incredibly challenging to stay disciplined in 2020, 2021. We had so many more opportunities than capital to deploy, but we maintained the course and we're trying to do the exact same thing right now as valuations have come down. Uh, this is a quick overview. Um, the only of our program, we have been investing in private equity for over 30 years now. Um, since inception returns are very strong, 16% plus net IRR, 1.7x multiple of invested capital, uh, almost 10 billion of generated value in the portfolio, and over 4 billion of value above the benchmark. This is a graphical representation and you can see our performance versus the benchmark performance and how much value has been created in the portfolio. And you see that the last couple of years have been special. I don't think we'll see the repeat of that, but who knows. Uh, this is our annual deployment pace. Uh, we have been deploying consistently. Uh, so 2022, we came under our expected deployment pace. We're supposed to do 1.2, we did uh, roughly a billion. 
Uh, and that's reflective of the slowing market. The fundraising has slowed down. Uh, GPs are not fundraising as much. But in general, we're on a 1.1, 1.2 annual deployment base. Uh, we've done analysis with Cambridge, with Anna's team, and the target deployment pace over the next few years for our portfolio is roughly 1.2 billion. And then on this chart, you'll see that we have been, the portfolio within private equity is quite diversified, uh, and we have been deploying roughly 50-50 uh, to buyout and venture type of opportunities and growing our um, gross equity uh, portfolio as well. Um, this is a quick representation of cash flows in the portfolio. Uh, you all might be uh, might recall that around 2014-15, we increased allocation to private equity, which means we went deep into the JV curve, which means we had to put more capital into the program that was coming back to us. We're finally reaching the point where we should be generating a lot of cash back to the plan. Unfortunately, given the current environment, that has been delayed, uh, but there is no doubt in my mind that the cash flows are coming and uh, it's it's really good that we have a mature program that does not consume a lot of capital, a lot of capital right now. Um, couple slides on our performance. Uh, this chart is to show you that over the years, over long term, the private equity portfolio has been a great contributor to the overall plan returns, and we're indeed the gross engine uh, of the plan assets. This is a quick snapshot. Uh, the only thing uh, I would highlight here is uh, that since inception, we contributed roughly $13 billion into the program. We got back all the money. So DPI is 1x, and we have $10 billion left in value in the portfolio. So this is a fantastic program. Uh, this is performance um, by strategy. To give you a quick snapshot, you'll see that one year was tough across the board. But if you look at 5, 10, 20 years, performance has been really, really strong. So this time around, we're also doing something uh, different. Uh, we're showing you the PME analysis, uh, which is public market equivalent. And it's essentially a way of measuring how well a private equity portfolio is doing compared if we invested all of this money, all of these cash flows uh, into our policy benchmark. And you see here that our portfolio has outperformed uh, across all relevant time periods. And let me remind you that the policy benchmark already includes the illiquidity premium uh, that we put on the portfolio. Right now it's at 300 basis points. Uh, this is a value bridge just to show you how the uh, you know portfolio did last year. So you'll see we were down almost $1.4 billion, uh, but uh, cash flows were roughly flat. We contributed roughly the same amount as we got back uh, out of the portfolio. Uh, obviously not a great outcome, but over the last three years, uh, this portfolio generated $4 billion in appreciation. And that's one of the key reasons that we're at the higher end of our range as percent of total plan assets. And we did it was not without consuming cash because cash flows were neutral. We actually got a little bit back uh, from the portfolio. Uh, this is a quick chart to show you the preliminary. Well, we actually finalized the performance uh, now and uh, the portfolio is roughly flat 
up 1% uh, for Q1. And uh, we only have roughly 15% reporting for Q2. And uh, on based on that, it's going to be flat again. Um, that's our expectations. With that, I'm going to turn over to Ad to walk you through our key exposures in the portfolio. Thanks, Tanya. And good afternoon, commissioners. I'll walk you through our next section, which covers portfolio exposures, attributions, and both short and long-term performance drivers. Slide 22 focuses on performance contributors for the portfolio in 2022. As you recall, growth and innovation are key themes for our portfolio. And while those themes have been accretive over the long term, they faced headwinds in the past year as the public markets have shifted focus from growth-oriented strategies to value. Slide 23 covers our sector exposures, which brings us to our first strategic overweight, technology as part of our innovation theme. Long-term attribution, the overweighted technology has been accretive. Tech's been a high-performing sector with annualized performance over 20% over the last three years. In 2022, the pullback in the public tech markets had a spillover effect on our private tech holdings, with software exposure in the PE portfolio down around 8.5% for the year. Really, softness was felt across all sectors in 2022, with the exception of our industrial exposure, which was up about 18%. Despite the performance or the down performance for software, software company fundamentals were remained strong. The average private tech company increased revenue by about 15% and EBITDA by about 10% in 2022, which means the decline in performance was driven by falling multiples in the software sector. Looking ahead, we expect overweight to tech to continue as we continue to pursue, excuse me, our innovation theme. Healthcare as well has also been an area of focus. Slide 24 shows our second strategic overweight, which is Asia Pacific at the expense of Europe, supported by our growth theme. Majority of the APAC exposures through venture and growth strategies, as we believe these strategies are best positioned to take advantage of the region's growth rate. As we've discussed before, we don't believe in geographic diversification for diversification's sake. We need to have conviction in the manager, the strategy, and the return profile um, in order to be comfortable to take on the, the currency risks in investing outside of the U.S. The decrease in U.S. exposure since 2017 is driven predominantly by the secondary sale that we had in 2018-2019 timeframe. We do expect U.S. exposure to moderately increase going forward as the secondary sale impact wears off, but we do expect that uh, shift to be very gradual. You know, we continue to review our rationale for investing outside of the U.S., and any changes to potential geographic exposures will likely also be gradual. Uh, we have been spending more time looking at opportunities in Europe, which so it's feasible that the gap between Asia and Europe could shrink in the coming years. Slide 25 covers our geographic attribution. Uh, we've achieved the highest absolute performance in the U.S. over the last decade plus, although we felt the impact of short-term volatility here in the region. We've outperformed uh, Cambridge in the U.S. over longer time periods as well. From a short-term attribution point of view, our Asia-Pacific exposure was the best relative performer in 22, although all geographies were down for the year. We've generally performed well in APAC across time periods compared to Cambridge. And as a reminder, our focus on Asia-Pacific investing really started about a decade ago. Over that time, our Asia-Pacific exposure has outperformed our European exposure, uh, with the caveat there being most of our European exposure. Slides a good reminder how quickly the investment landscape can change. If you think back only two years ago at our portfolio update then, our uh, 
five and 10 year investment returns for Asia Pacific were in line with what the returns for the US and that's no longer the case today. Slide 26, 26 shows our third strategic overweight which is venture and growth as part of our innovation and growth themes. A decrease in buyout exposure really is driven mostly by the secondary sale in 2019 with a large piece of that also from the strong venture performance that Tanya mentioned earlier. Going forward, we expect our buyout exposure to increase as the impact of the secondary sale wears off, although we do expect the shift to be gradual and will likely remain decent amount below the numbers shown on Cambridge's benchmark here. Slide 27 shows our sub-strategy attribution. Over a 20-year horizon, all of our sub-asset classes are before. Uh, venture has been the highest absolute performer over the past decade plus, and since inception, the venture has really been the performance driver for the portfolio. Over the past year, buyout and growth strategies have outperformed Cambridge, you know, with uh, venture slightly lagging. Now for venture, and Tanya mentioned this a little bit earlier, and I'm going to dig into the details here a little bit. You know, volatility has impacted our venture holdings more than Cambridge because our portfolio is more heavily weighted towards late-stage portfolio companies. Now, this is not due to investing more into late-stage venture strategies than Cambridge. Both us and Cambridge have about 15% of their exposure to late-stage VC strategies, but because our portfolio is more mature than Cambridge's, which means that we have older portfolio companies across our early-stage and multi-stage managers in PE. So these managers, uh, these holdings, these older holdings will be more sensitive to public market movement, value and also means there's likely more public stock that our managers are holding that they haven't yet distributed either for lockup restrictions or other reasons. As a good example of this, at its peak in 2021, our venture capital portfolio had 35% of its value in public stocks while Cambridge only had 15. So long way of saying public market volatility, volatility here hurt our venture portfolio more than hit Cambridge. And on slide 28, it's a good visual representation of what we just discussed about our public exposure. You can clearly see the peak in 2021. And today, the public exposure is back in line with historical averages of 10, 11%. And now I'd like to turn the presentation over to Rishi for an update on our co-investment program and our portfolio initiatives. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, so I'm going to speak about our co-investment program today. Um, as you can see, our co-investment portfolio is still relatively early in its development. Uh, the first co-investment was completed in 2014. Um, we have one private equity team executing on fund investments and co-investments, and so managing our team capacity is, is very important. Um, you know, we think we have a solid due diligence process. Uh, some of the things we do include uh, evaluating general partner investment memos, um, reviewing third-party due diligence reports, stress testing financial models for financial, uh, for uh, operating, uh, different operating assumptions and return outcomes. And then having a large pipeline of co-investments we're hoping will uh, allow us to be selective and, um, and, uh, and, and focus on our highest conviction opportunities. So moving over, moving on now to the, the co-investment uh, portfolio and performance, the team's invested uh, a little over 350 million across 26 co-investments since inception. Uh, the average check size per co-investment has been about 15 million, um, and the range per co-investment has been five to 25 million. As I noted earlier, the portfolio is still relatively young, um, with an average hold period of three years, when five full exits since inception. So the portfolio is still developing, uh, needs some time to mature and to, to continue to be built out. Uh, but overall, right now, the portfolio is currently performing. 
Uh, and our goal is to build out the co-investment program over time, but fund investing remains remains our top priority. So moving on to the, the last slide in the section now, I thought it'd be interesting to share some of the recent observations we've seen um, uh, from our co-investment deal flow. And so you know, LP demand for co-investments remains robust. Um, I think co-investments have generally performed well for, for LPs. Uh, we think the thesis around co-investments remains intact. So lower fees, lower carry, um, you know, leading to potentially uh, out, potential outperformance versus primary fund commitments. Um, you know, that said, co-investments aren't all upside. They're, they're important considerations too, like the demands on team capacity and uh, potential for a wider range of outcomes versus, versus fund investments. Um, what's, what we've been seeing over time now is general partners and limited partners have continued to evolve their approach to co-investments and they've added dedicated resources and are adding more dedicated resources um, in terms of the internal teams to manage co-investment deal flow. And we're also seeing expanding use cases from general partners in terms of how they're using co-investment capital. So evaluating potential conflicts of interest uh, is a key part of our due diligence process when we evaluate uh, co-investments. And then some of the things we've been seeing year to date, some themes um, from the deal flow uh, we've seen, you know, general partners have been a little more focused on fundamentals. So profitability um, and, uh, and growth versus uh, growth at all costs. Um, we've seen some thoughtful financing and transaction structures. So in the current exit environment, uh, rather than selling majority stakes of businesses, uh, general partners have opted to sell minority stakes of their businesses. Um, you've seen general partners um, structure their transactions so they don't need to reprice their debt in the current higher interest rate environment. They're able to maintain their, their, the capital structures where they had favorably priced debt um, uh, prior to the, the rate increases. And in the deals that are getting done, we're seeing more equity in those deals um, due to the higher, you know, higher cost of debt and low amounts of leverage available, they're putting more, more equity into those deals. Um, and I mentioned earlier, LP demand for co-investments has been robust. Uh, however, the supply of co-investments has slowed and um, that slowed in line with the slowdown in private equity deal flow. Uh, and there are a couple of contributing factors to that. Uh, one of them is the, the persistence of the valuation gap between sellers and buyers. Uh, on the seller side, especially sellers who have uh, high quality assets, uh, they might have, be able to hold on to those assets, continue to compound the growth in those assets, uh, and don't feel pressure to sell into the current exit environment. Um, and then on the buyer side, you know, with a higher cost of debt and lower leverage levels available, uh, it makes it more difficult for buyers to stretch to, to the valuations that sellers are still demanding. So we're still seeing that, that valuation gap um, and that's, that's causing a slow in, in, in deal flow. Uh, that said, GPs are optimistic about their future pipelines. You know, they, they feel like uh, there's pent up supply of deals in the market. Uh, and they feel like GPs and LPs will require liquidity at some point. And so you know, they're optimistic about, about the, the, the future opportunity set there. Um, so that wraps up the, the co-investment section. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up the staff portion of our presentation now uh, by talking about our 2022 and 2023 initiatives. Um, for our 2022 initiatives, I think the, the takeaway from this slide is that you know, private equity being a long-term asset class 
Uh, a lot of our initiatives are ongoing uh, and multi-year initiatives. That said, we've made progress on, on several of these initiatives in 2022. Um, you know, Tanya mentioned earlier, uh, uh, Lou joining the team. Uh, we're pleased to welcome Lou, so we were able to, to uh, successfully recruit and add resources there. Uh, we continue to, to build out our buyout exposure. Uh, and an important one this year is the deployment of our new uh, CRM system. Um, you know, this isn't just important for the private equity team. I think this is important for the broader Spurs team and uh, will help us to continue to institutionalize you know, our internal data and knowledge and investment process. So it's something we've been focused on and are working on including it in our, in our workflows. Um, and then collaboration with other asset classes is an, is an ongoing initiative. Um, and uh, an example of, of how we've done that is, uh, is how we've incorporated an ESG review in all of our private equity reviews, uh, private equity underwritings. Um, moving on, moving on to the 2023 initiatives now. Um, you know, I think the 2023 initiatives are, are similar to the 2022 initiatives in that we're focused on consistent deployment and investment pacing, uh, as well as thoughtful portfolio construction. Um, some of the specific initiatives we're, uh, we're focused on is continuing to, uh, to build out our, our pipelines and buyout, uh, co-investments and next generation managers, as well as continuing to monitor our existing exposures. Um, and then, of course, continuing to collaborate with, with uh, other asset class teams remains uh, an important goal for us. Um, and so, so that concludes the, the staff portion of the presentation. Maybe we, we, uh, we pause for questions after Cambridge uh, presents their piece, if that's okay uh, with everyone. Um, so let me, let me pass it on to Anita now to, to present for Cambridge. Thanks, Rishi. Well, good afternoon, commissioners. It's, um, it's a pleasure to be back here in person today. And on behalf of the rest of my Cambridge teammates, I'd like to thank uh, you and staff for our partnership over the last nine years. I have some prepared remarks today in which I'll provide a review of the private equity market for the last year and then talk about our outlook in the current environment and where we are focusing our, our efforts for the retirement system. We'll reserve some time for Q&A at the end, but please feel free to interrupt me and ask questions as I'm talking through my presentation. The headline is, after a few record-breaking years, private equity started to slow down in 2022 um, in terms of performance, fundraising, investment activity, um, exit activity, especially as we entered into the second half of the year. And this, uh, this slowdown has extended through 2023. With the backdrop of higher interest rates, recession fears, lingering inf inflation concerns, challenged IPO and exit markets, geopolitical risks, and so on, it's no surprise that GPs are experiencing a tougher environment. As Tanya noted, SFRS is over target in private equity today, and this is largely due to the significant outperformance of the private equity program over public markets in recent years. The PE allocation is now at 30%, and we are still above our target of 23%, but down from the high we reached of 33%. In a volatile 2022, SFRS PE portfolio provided some volatility dampening benefits to the overall pool performance. PE program 
was down 12.4% for the year compared with down 15.8% for the benchmark, which already incorporates a 300 basis point illiquidity premium. The retirement system was productive and flexible in the uncertain market last year. Target pace of 1.2, 1.3 billion for the year, but maintained flexibility and ultimately closed on just shy of a billion. With, with this lower commitment amount, the team still worked hard for it. We were able to add five new managers to the direct program, which emphasized some of the strategic areas we have been looking to add to um, for the program, like buyouts, healthcare, and Europe. Despite the more difficult environment, we continue to have high conviction in private equity as a long-term driver of portfolio returns, and we'll discuss some of our current outlook. It's important to remember in times like these that private equity commitments in vintage years during and coming out of a downturn generally have performed well. And the key is having a well-constructed and diversified program with best-in-class managers that are able to navigate the uncertainty. And on this point, we believe SPURS is well-positioned with its current portfolio and initiatives. In terms of commitment pacing, we reran our models and recommend a $1.2 billion target annual pace for the next few years for the program but we continue to emphasize maintaining flexibility and being guided more so by the attractiveness of opportunities in the market. On the next several pages, we can see more clearly the slowdown in the industry. On this slide, you see that global fundraising in recent years has been really robust. The first half of 2022 remained strong, but it fell sharply in the second half, which, which continues through 2023. Similarly, investment activity began at slowdown in the back half of 2022. Here we see the exit markets. The IPO market on the left side of the page shut down in 2022. You can see that, that sharp drop off. And M&A on the right side of the page has come down significantly as well. We should be prepared for longer hold periods and slower distributions to LPs as a result. We think M&A will pick up more quickly as valuations reset, and we're already starting to see some IPO filings, but it's still really challenged. And the fall off in distributions to LPs resulted in a liquidity crunch for many LPs that rely on distributions to reinvest back into their private programs, thereby leading to the slower fundraising environment. Moving to this slide, we expected, um, as we expected, we saw private valuations correct somewhat in 2022. Managers with large unrealized public portfolios and late stage venture have been hit the hardest. The S&P 500, as um, denoted in the gray line here, had a peak to trough return of down 24%. Here we see that U.S. venture capital and U.S. private equity have come down from its 2021 peaks to reflect some of that public market sell-off. U.S. private equity here for, for us refers to U.S. buyouts. Um, and um, the U.S. VC in green, which ran up the fastest in recent years, was down 21% in 2022. U.S. buyouts in blue was down a more mild 4%. I should note that we have had three really strong quarters recently in the public markets. The S&P is now down just 8% from its peak. 
historically, private investments typically recover more slowly than publics in periods of rebound. And we saw this in, um, you know, during the tech wreck or after the tech wreck and, and the GFC. So in other words, 2023 private numbers will likely lag public market returns. And we shouldn't be surprised if that happens. It's the valuation lag and a short-term effect, but in the long-term, private still outperform. On page eight here, oh, well, I guess there are no page numbers. Um, <laughs> on this page, we have another view of the start of the valuation reset. This, value, this, this slide breaks out venture and buyout returns by vintage year and it shows returns as of December 2021 compared with returns as of December 2022. Venture in green on the right is down the most. And then you see that the more recent vintages across private equity and venture capital are hit the hardest, i.e. those would have had more investments in the frothier 2020 to 2021 timeframe. But looking to the long term, we continue to expect private investments to be a strong contributor of returns. Here you see the longer, um, longer term returns on the left side of the page. And across buyouts, growth equity, and venture, the returns are in the mid-teens. That's probably reality, but that is still very good and provides an attractive premium to the public markets. The next two slides show that private equity vintages during and coming out of downturns have performed well and generally better. The point is we want to emphasize the importance of staying the course with the privates program, if you can, and continuing to make investments during tougher times like today. This slide shows the buyout um, vintages and this, uh, this slide shows venture and um, uh, we've boxed out the time period during the recovery after the GFC. On this slide, we see that in periods of significant market volatility, privates have historically been less volatile than public markets. In other words, providing volatility dampening benefits for the overall portfolio, which is what SERS experienced last year. Looking at your specific performance, your private equity program has steadily outperformed your policy benchmark and our Cambridge private benchmark and consistently ranks in the top 10 of pension plan private equity returns. In the latest uh, American Investment Council private equity report, the retirement system is once again on the top 10 list of private equity performance for public pensions. SERS boasts the rarefied accomplishment of being on the list nine out of 11 times that the AIC has published the report. On this slide, we share data that breaks out the return multiples of realized investments that we've tracked over the last 21 years. You can see that growth is a big driver of returns. The higher the revenue growth of an investment, the more likelihood uh, of an outsized return. And you see that on the, on the right-hand side. Going forward, we think GPs will need to continue to focus on driving growth in the portfolio companies, but they'll also need to focus on improving margins and operations as well. As Rishi said, it's no longer growth at any cost. We need to, or GPs need to find sustainable, profitable growth paths for their, um, their portfolio companies. 
And finally, I've said multiple times that we believe private equity continues to have the ability to outperform publics, and, and here are some additional metrics to show why. You can see that in terms of entry valuations, which denoted by EBITDA, PPM, or purchase price multiples, all the way on the left here, that entry valuations are more attractive than public markets, um, and we've compared that with the MSCI World Index and also uh, the growth rates uh, for revenue growth and EBITDA growth, that's more attractive as well, and leading to the outperformance all the way on the right uh, in terms of uh, actual returns that have been generated for the private equity investments as opposed to the, um, the public indices. I have in the in the appendix some highlighted some observations of the Spurs portfolio that I, I won't walk through, um, but uh, just wanted to summarize that. In short, we think the portfolio is well positioned with a strong roster of manager relationships. We remain comfortable with the tilts to Asia venture growth and technology, but recommend added focus in in complementing the program in other areas, which is an effort that we already began in recent years. And we also have been working on rebalancing underweight areas where appropriate, such as buyouts, healthcare, and Europe. Um, with that, let me turn it back to, uh, to Tanya and team um, and open it up for any questions for us, uh, us or staff. Thank you. Just open up for questions. Okay, excellent report. Um, does anybody have any questions? I have a few, but let's open it up to the rest of the board. Any questions? Yeah. No particular order, but I'll do it backwards. Uh, and just pages are not numbered the way I have them. But anyway, the return assumptions going forward, 12% IR from buyouts, 13% for venture capital. What is the assumption for the S&P or the benchmark that we're using, which is 75, 25%? Well, this, these assumptions, I think you're referring um, from our pacing model, we included this um, in the appendix as well. This is for the long-term um, return assumptions that's used in the pacing model does not account for, uh, there's no input in terms of S&P. I think for global equity though, for the 25 year, um, a return, our estimate is, um, and Anna, correct me if I'm wrong, in terms of the capital markets uh, assumptions, is 7.2%. Uh, yeah. 7.2, so our... For global equity. Our benchmark plus 300 falls within this, or this is exceeds that, which is good. Okay, thank you. And this 12 and 13% is does not assume any alpha. Uh, right, I know how it all average out. Yeah. Thank you. Um, on page 28 of the staff's presentation, the 11% private exposure, that 11%, how much of it is under your discretion versus the GP's discretion? It was in GP's portfolios. We, they still, we still, nothing. With no exposure, no discretion from staff. Okay. Uh, let's see. Okay, this goes back to Cambridge's statement. Um, Fine that you were number eight in some sort of universe, right? Okay. Uh, I've heard ignore peer any kind of peer group comparison, but and I'm not, this is obviously good numbers. 
But my question is, is what is the spread between number eight and number one? In the AIC report. Um, you can make a wild guess because I'll tell you what the point's really going to be. Because we look at those floating bar charts all the time, top quartile, saying that they're not spaced evenly. 100 basis okay. points. Um, because I think we've come to the conclusion we don't we can't do this for the average. Okay, my question is, if someone's ahead of us, that's fine. Whoever they are, the thing is, is how or why are they there? Are they better stock pick not stock, but are they doing something? It implies they're doing something different or better. Again, it's a ten-year number, so it looks like there's some persistence there. It wasn't just a one lucky time at bat. So that's what I'm trying to drive at. Um, that's why I like to look at what are the endowments doing. Because when it comes to investing, we are the same as them. Therefore, what are they doing? Can we do it? Some things they can do, we can't do. That's fine. Let alone the issue of then hiring better people, meaning City Hall, please give us more salary and more people. Why? Because we can do better if you'll let us, if you'll support us. So that's why I asked that question. If I may, Commissioner Driscoll, and I know you know this as well as anyone, um, when, when we think about us relative to peers or if we're delivering, performance is absolutely important, but performance in the context of risk and other metrics are also important. And to use a very simple analogy, if a car is driving at 40 miles an hour, sure, it's beating the 20 mile per hour car, but if it doesn't have brakes, that's a problem. And we want to make sure that um, we think about our performance relative to peers and where there are levers that we can successfully pull to enhance performance that's in private equity and in any asset class, but make sure we do so in a way that meets what we're trying to deliver in terms of uh, return and risk over the long term. Our risk tolerance may be different than other good institutional investors. Our liquidity needs may be different. Therefore, there's things we can and cannot do while we're still trying to be wise. But not to... Um, Pull around with your analogy, but the woman who got arrested yesterday for driving at 100 miles an hour into a wall, she's the one who survived, not the two passengers. And that's a kind of a silly analogy, but uh, when I see someone else is doing better, it's just a question, how or why do they do that? Can we do it or not? Again, and it may come back to our asset allocation mix because we have a higher weight to buy out, which is fine, but that's a safer group. We want a higher probability of of that return as opposed to the venture capital group, which we do a lot of. So anyway, thanks for the numbers, thanks for the reports, thanks for the good carrying on. The reason I asked about the liquidity premium is the alpha is above the liquidity premium. That's the number I look at that really, you guys get credit for achieving that. Thank you. Go ahead. Thank you. Uh, first, I, I wanna say thank you for the presentation. Uh, and also just similar to our last meeting when we discussed prior credit, one of the things that he's done has just been a spectacular performance looking back over the last few years to the point where uh, now we're relying on y'all to be really good because you're carrying a big load of the uh, of the performance of the entire fund um, and that growth. And then additionally, when we see the denominator effect and how it impacts um, your strategy, one of the things we discussed last time was uh, balancing that need against liquidity needs of uh, of the fund as well. You mentioned, that, and I appreciate in your presentation how you've been able to produce wallowed, so not um, having an impact negatively on liquidity, and uh, that you actually are optimistic going forward when it comes to liquidity. Uh, where I, where I wanted to just kind of get an idea on it is. 
where would that that opportunity come from where we're not impacting our liquidity? It would seem like you'd need to be able to reinvest more funds in that. And when I looked at sort of the change over time, it looked like there was several different areas that you were trying to reallocate. And one of them in particular was geographic. So to get to kind of the meat of the question that I'm looking at is, are there risk concerns you have about this sort of pivot? Uh, does it increase the risk that we have where you're able to invest with less capital or, or, or in a way that doesn't, sorry, I'm fumbling the words, but where you're not impacting our liquidity, but you're able to still produce the sort of returns that the fund needs? Um, the less impact on liquidity is because uh, the private equity program is mature program. Because what happens uh, with a young program, you're investing, contributing capital over the, like five, seven years, and there are no distributions, right? And that you become cash flow negative at the beginning. But then when the program hits like seven, 10 years and above, uh, then distributions start coming in. And a successful program, well-measured, well-managed program can be self-funding over time if we're not making any big changes to the program. That's what I meant. It's mm -hmm. it's not because we did anything special, it's just the time function that the portfolio has matured and essentially self-funding itself. If, for example, the board was to increase allocation significantly, then we would go again into the J curve and the program will consume capital. But it's normal. Younger program consumes capital, more mature programs start spitting out cash. And then, and then the, the focus on Europe that you talked about, I assume that you're referring to the ge geographic you know, focus. That's not in addition to what we're already doing. That is going to be a part of the current allocation, the current planned expenditure allocations going forward. So this is within the boundaries we built for ourselves. This is not in addition to what we've had planned on doing. Thank you. Uh, and I'm wondering if we could kind of talk a little bit more about that. I noticed that you'd had under sort of contributors and detractors, geography was one of the components and Asia was there. Could you kind of unpack the, what you mean by Asia Pacific? It's kind of big, broad region. Where, where are we really targeting with some of these investments and opportunities? And are there any risk concerns that you have about investing in this area as compared to, say, Europe or North America? I'm sorry. I think most of what the exposure we have in Asia Pacific is through venture growth. A lot of that exposure is within China itself. Um, anytime you look XUS, there's a, a higher risk profile, I guess you would call it that. If nothing else, everything else being even, there's currency that needs to be taken into account. And then I think uh, given what's happened over the last few years, I would say looking at investing in China, the risk profile has also changed a little bit and not in a positive way. Um, so these considerations on the risk side are continual considerations we already look at and we review them for every investment or every commitment we make outside of the U.S. So, I, you know, you could say, you know, I would say that there's not necessarily more or less risk. I don't know if that's the way we necessarily think about it, but the risk you're taking on investing in Asia Pacific is going to be different than the risk you're taking on invest, investing in Europe. In Europe, you're overgeneralization alert here, but likely to have currencies that, are, that could potentially be more stable. You know, and especially if you're in developing Asia, you're probably gonna have a little bit less stable currencies. You know, the, the trade, major trade partners could be different for each, the relationship with the US could be different for each, and importantly, the growth rate of each region is materially different, right? And so these are all the availability of debt, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So we try to build a profile 
uh, risk profile, when we think about the risk construct of, of a potential commitment, we kind of build on the ground up both on, you know, the manager strategy, what they're trying to accomplish, how they go about accomplishing that, and the geography in which they play and how that also layers on as well. So I hope that touches on somewhat. Yeah, I, I, I'm on that same note. When you're, when we're allocating funds in different regions, is the distribution of sectors more or less the same? So like are Europe exposures in the same sort of sector distribution as in Asia or China specifically, or? It's, um, probably not exactly the same, but I will say that the focus on technology and the focus on healthcare are themes we have globally. So that's not just within the US, those are things, areas we're interested in in Asia, those are areas we're interested in in Europe as well. So I would expect that those two to probably be the foot forward from the, uh, from a exposure point of view, if you will, you know, different regions, you will have to build conviction in exposures differently. What consumption looks like in the U.S. will be different than what a consumption looks like in Asia, which is going to look vastly different than what a consumption looks like in Europe per se. So, based on the differences between the geographies, the other subsectors that we're interested in, you know, will also change. And regarding, oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I was just, just going to add, you know, so the sort of top down thinking about it from a geographical standpoint, that's absolutely something we do. But we also acknowledge that we've got to do the bottom up evaluation of a fund of the sectors that they're playing in. And I think being really targeted with that is is becoming increasingly important now. And so um, it isn't sort of a, a view of, oh, we're going to allocate to this region. It's a view of, hey, here's a portfolio construction that could make sense for us. Are there investment opportunities bottom up that are attractive enough for us to build, build up that exposure? So it's a, sort of a combination of the top down and bottom up. And would you say, well, how, how does due diligence differ? So, uh, you know, obviously with COVID and, and the challenge and travel and all, uh, and then going into these markets that maybe we didn't have as much exposure to before. Can you describe sort of what that due diligence process is when you're proving up these investments? So one of the things we're fortunate with having a fairly consistent team that's been around for a long time, it, it's unlikely that we're committing to a manager that we've never met before, even during COVID times, you know, there would be, you know, Tanya's been in this role for a long period of time. So she knows the market in Asia and Europe, you know, and venture and be very, very well. So having those longstanding connections and ties helps go a long way. Uh, but then the, the complexities, you know, during COVID were you know, probably not all that much different ex-US and within the UX. If you, we couldn't meet someone even in San Francisco in person, you know, so that, you know, you have to do a lot over um, video, the, the Zoom, et cetera. You know, the amount of desktop work, the preparation work we do into it, the cutting the, the the reviewing data, cutting data, you know, understanding that, understanding portfolio fit, understanding sector fit, you know, that's the same. Yeah, so that part's fairly consistent, but trying to figure out, yeah, how do you build the same level of conviction when you're on video calls, what you're able to do in, in person was a key part of it. And then I would say that increasing the number of um, reference calls ended up being important there to try to kind of build out the, the the qualitative aspect of a due diligence. And also relying more on our partners who have presence in the ground in the region, whether it's Cambridge or some of our managers, um, you know, who we used as a resource absolutely to um, beef up our diligence during that time. And that functions usually like 
delegated to the managers. Our our staff is not going. Oh, we are absolutely going. Absolutely going. Why does that work? Yes. This is this is very much as this team here, you know, including Justin, Jada, et cetera, need to have full conviction going forward. Like we need to do our work. We need to be comfortable. We are not going to give anyone else that um, authority or on our behalf. And the team has been traveling extensively, and the travel has picked up significantly um, this year. Um, and starting was the second half of last year. So the team has been on the road nonstop. Thank you. I noticed the nods about the travel. I guess the, the expense has gone up. <laughs> Mr. Yes, thank you, President Helfand. And, and just to piggyback on um, Commissioner Thomas questioning regarding your ongoing evaluation of Asia opportunities, how do you benchmark that against the current geopolitical landscape that's going on? It's a very tough question. I know. <laughs> um, because um, the dynamic have changed quite a bit. Uh, what helped us right now, the fundraising has slowed down significantly in Asia. Um, so we have time to reevaluate as managers are coming back for re-ups. Every manager is going to be evaluated, not based on what you manager did and your performance, but also does this strategy make sense in the current geopolitical environment? Um, so, um, yeah, it, it's, it's going to be tough re-underwriting, and that's why our team is going to be in Asia several times this year um, to meet with everybody um, to see what's actually happening in the ground before making any conclusions, right? Because we don't want to make any rash decisions, uh, and we want to do sort of re-underwriting of the portfolio. It's one of the biggest projects we have this year. I would think so, given where we are. Absolutely. And if I could also add that there are really two levers to pull. We can make a decision whether to invest, for instance, in an Asia manager. Mm -hmm. And that Asia manager most often is investing across countries and they have uh, on the ground knowledge and decision making capability to move within those opportunities. And they also are assessing geopolitical risk on behalf of, of us as a U.S. investor. Right. So there's a lot of ways to get at this question and, and mitigate and manage that risk. And that's, a, that's important as far as mitigating risk. That's why I wanted to understand the ongoing evaluation of it. Right. And then uh, I guess uh, my second question is going into the um, ESG platform. One of the things that you know I've witnessed and noticed over time with, with um, PE and a lot of the uh, managers, their focus, I mean, there's been an increased focus on ESG, but they're not quite there when it comes to uh, building the internal platforms to really uh, support their ESG investing. So I want to get, understand where you feel their, their focus is. Is it something that's a priority when it comes to working with SPURS and other uh, pension plans or what's the uh, update on that? Um, we definitely have seen a lot of progress um, across uh, our larger private equity managers who have added dedicated resources. Um, we do, within our portfolio, was a focus on smaller managers and venture. Uh, perhaps those folks that need a little bit of a help, a little bit of a push. Um, and that's where our internal resources uh, with Andrew have been instrumental, where he has been engaging with those folks directly. And those folks have been reaching out for, you know, resources and programs. So it's ongoing dialogue uh, and it's uh, the approach we take is um, a very pragmatic approach to that. Uh, 
and they understand the importance of it as it they is. absolutely understand um, before we close any investments they see our ESG policy um, Andrew meets with all of our managers um, to kind of not only to understand what uh, they're doing but also so they understand what we're doing uh, and offer us as a resource to get help them get better thank you and thanks for a great report and update and congratulations on expanding your team Maybe maybe one one quick thing on 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 ESG, just a data point that we're seeing with some of our larger managers. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, some of our larger managers, I think they started on ESG in more of a defensive posture. Yeah, exactly. And some of them are pivoting now to looking at it more offensively, um, which has been, you know, a, a pleasing development because hopefully that'll that'll help to drive returns also. So. And that was my concern with the, the whole sector. That's exactly how they start. Exactly. Thank you. Hey, um, I have a simple question. You received 62 inbound opportunities and made one co-investment in, in 2022, right? If you take a, a needle and on one side, it's your team has in their diligence has decided not to do it. Or the other side of the scale is that you weren't, didn't get the allotment and somewhere in between it just wasn't a good investment. Where would it fall? Um, I'd put maybe a third category <laughs> in there um, of of team capacity and and timing um, to to be able to 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 execute and get the co investments across the line. So a lot of the the co investment processes uh, can be very quick. They can be sort of a four week turnaround um, to get from start to finish in a particular process and. You know, our team, we're focusing on fund investing and co-investing. And so if a co-investment comes up, you know, in the middle of us underwriting a fund, for example, um, it's, it's, not, it's not as easy to, to underwrite and get that co-investment from start to finish in four weeks. And particularly with, you know, sort of um, the schedules that, that, that we had to, you know, in order to take to the board, we really need to get a lot of our work done in like the first couple of weeks and build conviction. And so... Um, I'd add that third that third leg to it, which I think is is an important piece. I think there's a portion of those uh, co-investments that just weren't a fit for us in terms of, you know, they might not have been um, in in companies uh, that were profitable, which is a focus for us. And so they might, that company might have been burning cash, so just not a fit for for what we're trying to achieve on the co-investment side. Uh, some of those co-investments came from managers that uh, we might not have been familiar with. And so we would not only need to underwrite the co-investment in four weeks, we would have to underwrite that manager in four weeks. And, and that can also be, be challenging to do. So, uh, you know, there are various, various reasons for it, but I think um, tight timelines and, and capacity was, is the, the, the other leg I'd add to your... To, to, to use Commissioner Driscoll's analogy about the woman who was driving so fast into the wall, we, you guys have a good brakes on the car. No? <laughs> I, 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 second second question. I've always I, when I first came on the board and our previous CIO so went into the co-investment space and the like, and I was always sort of drawn back to the fact we wrote too small a check. As the as the world comes back to normal, hopefully what normal is, it'll be redefined, but it will be a little more robust and whatever. 
Are you, do you think it's aspirational to say we, we should be playing with bigger dollars in these co-investment spaces? On the lessons learned we've learned to date? Yeah, I'll take a shot and then others, others should definitely jump in. So I think there, there are a couple of things. I think the size of the check um, can, can, can be driven by the, the type of investment and the size of the manager. Um, and so, you know, some from some managers will hear that, hey, you know, this 15 to $25 million strike zone that you have, this is perfect for us okay. because this is, this is the size check we need. Um, and then from other managers that might be sort of mega cap, they might be looking for several hundred million dollars of co-investment, which is, which, you know, would be difficult for us to do and, and feel like we were adequately diversified. Where's so, the middle? Sorry? Where do you think the middle is if you were going to define what you just said? Yeah, to whatever or hundred to what? Yeah, no. So I think I think the several hundreds for us, I think it's, it's tricky. Um, I think it comes back to, you know, if we if we push into co investments, what percentage of the private equity portfolio we want that to be, mm -hmm. and then we'd sort of backtrack that into pacing, and we'd backtrack that into the number of deals that we want to do each year, mm -hmm. and we'd backtrack that into our team capacity to be able to execute. So I think you know the question around check size. I think it had, it would need to start first around like how much of an allocation do we do we want how are we going to resource it you know and then back back into check size so not, maybe not a, a satisfying answer but yeah. well well perhaps to just take a step back and think big picture here um, we've got a great team who have all the capability to do the diligence that we need to make individual co-investments. What we are gonna do over the course of the year is really sort of refine how we're going to uh, approach co-investing, um, the objective relative to um, the team that we have and the skills that, that we have. So it's not, I'm not here to say we're doing a 180 or making a big change, but as you've seen, as we've done at other asset classes, we've been very thoughtful about what are our objectives where, are, where is our time best spent? Where's the return and risk uh, for, for those types of investments and how do we want to approach it? So I say that because I don't want any of our team to be put on the spot and putting a stake in the ground on a, uh, um, a size of a co-invest. We want to think about our approach holistically and that will then drive how big of a check size we write. Maybe to tie that into what we've done historically, I can say we've been opportunistic historically with, the, with regards to how we've approached co-investments and we're fortunate that seems to be working well so far and hopefully that continues. Yeah, it would be great to be able to pivot where it's more of a strategic piece of the overall portfolio. But as Allison mentioned, there's a few, you know, a couple boxes that need to be checked, a staffing problem that probably needs to, to, to get, you know, you know, off a little bit before. I certainly wasn't advocating. I, I was asking a question. Oh, that's so, okay. And if I could just add um, the specific bite size, though, looking at a co-investment from our perspective, you'd probably look at it in the context of a fund size bite. So if you're typically investing or committing, say, $100 million to a fund that invests um, in 10 underlying companies, you know, bear in mind, a co-investment is one company, so you've got concentration risk and you want to build a basket of that. So would you be comfortable with 10% of a bite size or 20%? I mean, I think that there's some wiggle room in terms of flexibility and judgment there, but looking at the, the conviction in that specific co-invest. Managers, managers, managers. <laughs> yeah. I want to understand something that uh, Rishi said. Uh, you said you're normally you're given four weeks. Okay. Yes. 
Um, obviously, page 18 suggests why don't we do more of it, but I understand if the average co-investment was $15 million, it takes just as much time, if not more so, to do a co-investment due diligence slash recommendation as it does to do a 50 to $100 million fund recommendation. And you can argue which is more valuable, et cetera. But there is that time issue when there's, I count five and a half people right now on the private equity. My point being, was four weeks not enough? So, it, yeah, it depends. Four weeks can can be can be tricky because four weeks, you know, it takes us time to do the initial due diligence. Well, I'll give you a sense of the process, right? So first, we typically need to sign NDAs and non-reliance letters just to get access to to information for the co-investment. That process of lawyers going back and forth can take can eat a few days. Um, and then, then we'll get access to the information. We'll do a desktop review. The manager might schedule uh, uh, due diligence meetings. Um, those due diligence meetings sometimes happen after when we need to submit board material <laughs> to uh, for for a board meeting. And so, you know, in situations like that, we're we're in a we're in a difficult position because we'd have to say is this worthwhile for us to call a special board meeting to try to, to, try to execute on this co-investment? Um, and then with everything else we have going on, is this the right use of resources? So these are, you know, these are some of the, the challenges we've, we've faced trying to do this opportunistically. I think if, there was, if we were doing it programmatically, you know, it, could, it could be different. There, there are other plans that do it more programmatically, but based on how we're set up to do it today, um, yeah, and having one team execute fund investments and co-investments, four weeks has typically not been enough for us. Okay, well then I'll make the comment that uh, in one sense you ask the question, is it worth it? Because it's, when you focus on an opportunity like that, it's going to be disruptive when all the other work, because you guys plan your work, what, one or two years in advance, right, nonstop. So for all of a sudden, an opportunity to come in, there's gonna be an effect because there's a lot of other deadlines, even for fund investings. I would say simply what the numbers on page 18 suggest is worth doing. If you want to be an opportunity investor, you have to think and act that way. Granted, bringing on the resources, which means people and tools, you added a CRM, and maybe that was only on funds as opposed to the other tools that will help you even do that kind of due diligence on a deal. But it indicates to me it is worth doing. And I'll say it this way, it is worth calling the special meeting and then we decide to cancel, we don't want to do it. You have to think parallel all the time, much like the funds you've selected for us, I'm sure they, they have to pay broker deal fees, excuse me, broken deal fees, not all the time, but they have to be there because they know it's wise to pay the broken deal fee as opposed to just not doing it. So it's the same kind of thinking we parallel those people. Uh, so I'm just supporting. That's how we should do it going forward as you develop your team and the tools to do more co-investing with all the other fund investing. Thank you. Great. Okay. Just listening to the exchange, one of the things that came up a couple of times was capacity. And uh, I know that we've kind of been looking at the process and how much needs to be done before the board versus otherwise. But I'd like to hear from Tanya or, or Allison Moore, just with my personnel committee hat on, if there is really a lot of room for additional staffing capacity on this team, if that would make a sizable impact on these sorts of co-investments, if we think that that's maybe a thing we should explore going forward. 
Uh, th thank you for that question. So uh, we, we do have a new addition, as you know, uh, to the team. Um, there's another position. Um, well, let me take a step back. So two years ago, there were seven investment positions in total approved. Um, and I came in and I looked at and assessed the needs across all the asset classes based on where we need to invest the money, based on liquidity, based on all these things, um, where to start allocating uh, those resources. So we've been expanding the team and the newest addition in MPE is one of those. Uh, we are looking to make another addition. The process of um, hiring is um, long, um, but it is a priority and we will make that happen. Um, we have in the budget two investment positions uh, for this coming fiscal year, um, and that's what's been approved. So we can take a look, you know, longer term. But for now, I think um, it's been a tremendous add with the board support to have those seven positions, and we will continue to evaluate. Um, that is why, though, how we design the co-invest program based on uh, time, experience, trade-offs um, is important. So we want to put parameters on that so we can be efficient and effective. Thank you. Okay. So any further questions, comments? It's interesting at the start in the 19, I said it's interesting it started in 1987. I was going to ask Jill, was that before or after the crash? Do you remember the inception of private equity? It was in 87. And I'll tell you, there were co-investments in the first fund of funds called Crossroads. Oh, okay. See, I, I, I figured you would know that. That's I was curious when I was preparing for the board meeting. I wanted a historical perspective, so I thought I would ask. The font of history. They each did 19%. Yeah. Right. All right. Number stay in your head. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Tony and team. That was that was excellent. Thank you. So. Great, and it's a good example of um, bringing this report in because of a cancellation of the investment committee. We brought it onto the board. That's the flexibility that will get us to the next step in in this committee process. And so, thank you. Um, do you have? A I believe we need to open it up to public yeah. comment. Yeah, we will. We'll open up to public comments. It's a discussion item. Calling in-house public comment. Reminder to callers to press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, we have no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Great. Call the next item, please. Item number 12, discussion item, real assets annual update. Alrighty, real assets. Uh, before we go into the presentation, I wanted to highlight our team. To my left, we have Chris Chow and Christy Rosano. Uh, Chris Chow joined us uh, almost eight years ago now uh, as a senior portfolio manager working on our real assets portfolio and was promoted to director. And in this capacity, uh, Chris oversees our real assets portfolio. Uh, he's joined by Chris Terrazano. Uh, Chris joined us uh, four and a half years ago uh, as uh, investment analyst, and uh, he was promoted to associate portfolio manager. So very happy um, to have him. Uh, we're going to go through very similar agenda. Uh, our team will cover, um, we'll give you highlights of what happened in 2021, our performance tilts in the portfolio, our initiatives, 
and Mark with Cambridge uh, will walk you through the markets and give you an overview of what happened in the real assets market uh, in 2022. So um, unlike many other assets in the portfolio, uh, real assets portfolio actually did well in 2022. Uh, our portfolio returned 10% uh, in 2022. Uh, we have three major sub-strategies in the portfolio and natural resources led the way uh, with 21% uh, return, uh, followed by infrastructure, the newest addition to our portfolio and real estate. But all key sub-strategies within the portfolio were positive. Uh, similar to private equity, we're over allocated uh, to real assets versus our 10% target. Uh, it's partially driven by the fact that in 2022, the allocation to real assets was decreased from 17% to 10%. And at that time, we told the board that it's going to be a long process. We don't want to make any big cuts in the portfolio. And uh, we're on a glide path to our 10% allocation, and that uh, should take us maybe seven, maybe 10 years. Um, so that's in line with what we're expecting. Plus, you add the fantastic 2022 when the portfolio was up when everything else was down. Uh, the team continued to uh, commit capital. Um, our pacing is uh, was almost $600 million, uh, and we committed to 12 new investments. The majority of those were real estate investments, followed by infrastructure. Uh, and while the majority of capital went into the existing portfolio, we also um, supported three new manager relationships. And this portfolio was cash flow positive delivering $170 million in net distributions um, to the portfolio. Uh, just to remind, more, uh, remind you, um, the role of real assets is to provide diversification, total return in yield, and also inflation protection. Uh, so our program um, is driven by the total return. Uh, we're targeting 10 to 12% over the long time cycle. Uh, and, uh, you know, the majority uh, of that return will come through asset appreciation. There are key, uh, three key strategies in the portfolio, uh, real estate, natural resources, and infrastructure. Uh, you might recall that last year uh, we updated our benchmark and added infrastructure as a new strategy uh, to the portfolio, and the team has been doing a lot of work uh, on that. Uh, and similar to private equity, uh, it's a global, uh, very opportunistic program uh, focused on private market funds and co-investments. And again, we're emphasizing partnerships with high-quality sponsors. Uh, the program started in 1978. Uh, at that time, we're, uh, we're largely, for the, the majority of the program, uh, it was a core real estate program. Uh, and then more recently, maybe within the last 10 years, we started to diversify into uh, other assets and it became uh, not just a real estate program, but real assets program. Um, I already mentioned that our benchmark was revised in 2022 and we added the infrastructure piece to the portfolio. And that's just a graphical representation of uh, the evolution of our program. So you'll see that the majority, uh, for the majority of its history, it was a core real estate program targeted and returning roughly 8%. But come um, 2000, um, I think 13, 14, this is when we added uh, additional strategies. Uh, such as uh, value-add opportunistic real estate, natural resources, and more recently over the last couple of years, uh, infrastructure. 
Um, as far as highlights for 2022, uh, again, uh, we made uh, 12 new investments uh, across 11 managers. Uh, the majority of capital went to the existing portfolio, three new relationships, uh, and uh, we made, um, you know, 60 million in co-investments. Um, the portfolio pipeline for the year end looks really, really busy. And again, with the majority of capital going to the re-ups. Um, and then as far as new commitments that we made in 2022, um, the majority of them uh, went into the real estate uh, followed by infrastructure. And then our approach to um, you know, managers, uh, we're uh, going after uh, specialized managers. Managers have, have expertise uh, who operate in uh, special geographies or, uh, you know, can add value. And you see it in uh, our investments in uh, dedicated strategies such as outdoor storage, self-storage, and data center assets. Uh, returns were positive across all strategies, uh, but again, very strongly driven by our exposure to natural resources that return over 20% to the portfolio. Um, I think that's it on this slide. I already mentioned uh, some of the metrics that were slightly over allocated and we were cash flow positive um, last year. Uh, of, as of the end of uh, 2022, we have roughly $5 billion in NAV and additional $2 billion in unfunded commitments. Uh, with that, I'm gonna turn over to Chris to walk you through performance highlights uh, of the portfolio. Thank you, Tanya. Um, so, so, yeah, starting off on, on page 12, um, this shows overall market returns for the year. Um, you can see it was a mixed year for public real assets. In light blue is natural resources, which had a very strong year. Um, and opposite of that is in dark blues is real estate, which struggled as interest rates uh, increased over the, over the year. Um, on the very right as infrastructure, which you, you can't really see because it was flat for 2022. And on um, page 13, uh, this dials in on the real estate return since that's the bulk of our exposure. Um, and it's showing 2022 REIT performance in blue and then uh, 2023 performance in green, which is through June. Um, so clearly 2022 was a difficult year for every asset class or every asset type. Nothing was exempt really from the impacts of rising rates, um, but we've seen a bit of a rebound thus far in 2023. There's a lot more variation in that depending on the asset type. Um, you can see particularly for office, it's continued to struggle uh, so far this year while, while others have rebounded a little bit. Um, and in the bottom row, you can see where first has dedicated exposure. Um, that's through closed-in funds, not through REITs, but just to provide some insight, um, you can see you know, where we have exposure and how some of those sectors have started to rebound. Page 14, so this is showing performance of the real assets portfolio overall. Um, you can see in the one-year time period, the portfolio underperformed the policy benchmark, but it's in line for the three-year time period and shows considerable outperformance um, for the longer-term time periods. So regarding the one-year uh, time frame, it's likely a function of two things. First, currency effects were not favorable in 2022, so our ex-US investments were neg negatively impacted by the currency movement. And another driver was that um, higher exposure to core real estate in our benchmark than in our actual portfolio. And core real estate performed very well in the first half of 2022, which pushed um, our benchmark higher. 
I will come back to that point in a little bit. Um, so I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit later. On page 15, um, you can see how the real assets portfolio has performed relative to overall planned returns. Clearly a challenging year in 2022, but real assets helped offset that. Um, and in addition, it's also been a contributor over longer time periods. And on page 16, we also looked at real assets portfolio performance relative to US CPI over the same time periods. Uh, you can see that performance has outpaced inflation over every time period, even as it began ramping up over the last year. Um, so here uh, we're breaking down performance by each of the major substrategies. So the bottom half of the page um, shows natural resources on the left and infrastructure on the right. Both of those substrategies um, outperform the respective benchmarks over every time period and had a fairly strong performance in 2022. On the top right is, is real estate, which also shows out performance over the long, longer time periods, um, but slight underperformance in the one and three year time periods. Um, we do have um, greater exposure to Europe and APAC markets relative to the benchmark there. And so again, currency movement um, impacted returns over the, the shorter term time periods. Uh, page 18 is illustrating the uh, return attribution based on each of the major substrategies. So the chart on the left shows quarterly breakdown um, in, in terms of gains and losses, and then the chart on the right just showing the total for 2022. So in the quarterly chart, uh, you can see the year started off fairly strong. However, real estate begins to pivot in the second quarter. By the third quarter, you know, we're, we're seeing more losses than gains from the real estate portfolio. Offsetting that, though, is the natural resources portfolio, which produced a gain in every single quarter of 2022. So the result is that over 70% of the gains within real assets last year were driven by the natural resources portfolio, uh, even though it's only you know about a third of the portfolio from a NAV perspective. And here on page 19, um, this is going back to the point earlier that that I mentioned about the underperformance over the one-year time period. So we just wanted to point out that that the lag is mostly driven by our high exposure to core real estate in our benchmark, um, but that benchmark was changed in the middle of last year, and that took effect on July 1st, 2022. So prior to the change, the policy benchmark for real, real estate was the Odyssey Index. That is 100% core real estate, but the actual composition within our real estate portfolio was only about one-third core, which you can see in the middle bar graph and the middle bar chart there. Um, so when core real estate had a very strong start to 2022, the benchmark fully captured that performance, but our portfolio didn't given it's mostly non-core real estate. Then the benchmark shifted um, and that took effect on July 1st. So from that point on, the weights in our benchmark are floating so that the core and non-core um, weights will match our actual portfolio exposure. But of course, after that point last year, um, markets shifted and real, real estate performance was negative in the second half of the year. So not much of an opportunity to uh, for, our, for our portfolio to bounce back relative to the benchmark. But the point being essentially the underperformance um, in the one-year timeframe is driven by the core real estate exposure being substantially higher in our benchmark compared to our actual portfolio in the first half of 2022. On page 20 here, this is um, an overview of our co-investment portfolio. Uh, you can see performance is flat at this point. Um, to highlight the major points here, so we had two new co-investments that were made in 2022, both within real estate and a vast majority of that capital focus on maintaining exposure in the industrial space. Um, there have been a few realizations at this point within our co-investment portfolio, 
but offsetting some of that, those positive investments um, was material negative impact from one specific sponsor in um, the conventional energy sector. Um, and at this point though, the active portfolio is relatively young and all of the more recent investments have been in real estate or infrastructure or um, uh, yeah, infrastructure uh, communications and digital infrastructure. So we think we're better positioned um, going forward in terms of co-investment performance. And then finally, um, page 21. So this chart is just depicting quarterly gains and losses and it goes through the first quarter of 2023. So you can see obviously 2021 was a very strong year, but that started to reverse in the second quarter of 2022. And um, while the net gain loss was positive throughout all of last year, we have dipped into negative territory in the first quarter of 2023. So that concludes performance. I'll hand it off to Chris Chow to review portfolio exposures and construction. Thanks, Chris. Uh, so now on this slide, I'll talk about our portfolio construction. This has, has a lot of text and we'll talk about some of these bullet points and uh, succeeding slides. So I'll just hit a few points. One, real estate is our largest exposure and will still be our largest exposure. Real estate is, is fairly mature, it has a global opportunity set um, uh, relative to say natural resources or infrastructure. Um, for our real estate portfolio, we do intend and continue to have a diversified portfolio uh, as it relates to property types. We do have a global portfolio, although I'll note that over the past couple of years, and over the near term, it will be more domestic and focus. On natural resources, which is our second largest exposure, uh, given the current NAV and change in our asset allocation target back in 2020, and the change to our long-term benchmarks, which reduces natural resources, we do expect this to decrease over time. And on infrastructure, it's our latest addition um, from a sub-composite perspective. We're building from a low base, um, but we are growing that quite meaningfully. On the next page is a illustration of our portfolio evolution by strategy. Um, as Tanya mentioned, historically, we were really a core U.S. real estate program, um, but about a decade ago, that shifted to become a global real assets portfolio. So as you see in the illustration, natural resources in blue has been increasing over time. As it relates to infrastructure, we formally adopted it last year, hence the 10% allocation or the 10%, that's right, allocation in blue. Um, I'll just note that we have been investing in infrastructure for a period of time. Um, and so in the details, it does break out infrastructure, which was historically classified as either real estate or natural resources. Um, just given our long-term benchmarks uh, and where we are today, we do expect to continue to focus on real estate and infrastructure. On the next page is an evolution of our portfolio by geography. Um, we do maintain a global program and it has increased uh, internationally over this time period. Um, most of the exposure internationally is focused in our real estate program. As I mentioned, uh, given our focus more domestically, we do expect this trend of ex-US exposure to moderate. Uh, this, we will now take a deeper dive into the three different set portfolios, with this one being focused on real estate. Uh, this is a busy, busy slide, so I'll walk through uh, by quadrant. So starting at the top right, this is a depiction of our exposure by risk profile. Um, we've talked about and noted that our exposure to core um, will decline or has been declining over time, hence, and have we've increased our exposure or investments to non-core, meaning value-add and opportunistic fund strategies. Um, we do expect core to continue to decline as we are active on the value-add side of things. Just directly below is a depiction of our property type exposure. Uh, we do maintain a diversified portfolio as is evidenced by uh, this illustration. Uh, we do intend to increase our exposure to the industrial and residential markets uh, going forward. 
And then just directly to the left is our uh, exposure by geographies. Um, we are overweight to ex-US, um, both Europe and Asia Pacific, compared to, say, the Cambridge Associates benchmark. Um, and we do expect this trend to moderate. Uh, this slide is talking about our real estate office exposure. Purely real estate office is topical these days. There has been value destruction to varying degrees, depending on building quality and location. There have also been structural headwinds for office uh, pre-COVID, and additionally post-COVID with the work from home phenomenon. Um, I'll make a couple of notes on our office exposure. One, uh, half of our exposure is outside the US. Clearly there are work from home trends, uh, most prominently say in the UK and Australia, but we think um, internationally is probably less severely impacted as say the US. And the second, over two thirds of our exposure is in core properties, meaning they are currently well leased and generating cash flow. So office as a whole does remain on watch. Uh, we're not necessarily looking to add office exposure or be contrarian, although I'm sure there will be opportunities that our funds will uh, target for our, our portfolio. Uh, this slide breaks down our natural resources and infrastructure exposures. Just on the left for natural resources, uh, we do have a overweight towards metals and mining and have had so for a period of time, uh, with the rest of the exposure being diversified generally across conventional energy. On the right is our infrastructure portfolio. Uh, unfortunately, there isn't a great breakdown of benchmark uh, from Cambridge Associates by sectors or substrategies. Um, I'll note that we are looking to diversify our infrastructure program, which is still relatively nascent. Right now, we do have a, a heavy allocation towards communications, digital infrastructure, hence the, the exposure you see for towers and fiber. And then we are looking to be active on the energy transition side and broader sustainability sectors. Um, so you see at the bottom, the 21%, we do expect that to grow over time. Moving to the next slide on annual deployment pace. Uh, one of our goals and beliefs is to have consistent vintage year deployment, um, so as not to time the markets. With the exception of 2020, um, which was due to COVID and the change in our asset allocation mix from 17 to 10%, we've generally been in the 500 to $600 million range over the past couple of years. Year to date, we've closed 125 million, um, and we expect to end up end the year at around 500 to 600 as well. So the team's committing roughly 10 to 12 commitments per year. This next slide, I, I think it's new than what we've relayed or had before, although we have relayed some of these same messages and themes previously. The team is always evaluating different strategies and markets from a top-down perspective to balance our bottoms up and in investment analysis. So trends don't, train, trends don't change too much from year to year, so much of our focus remains from the prior years. Um, I'll note that there is a greater actionability in special situations or structured solutions. Since COVID, um, a lot of it is dealing with the rapid rise in the interest rate environment. Uh, we will be focused mostly on real estate and infrastructure for our portfolio, given our current underweights. Uh, Tanya did talk about our portfolio cash flow a bit uh, as our portfolio is maturing. And with the reduced asset allocation targets, there is a greater chance for positive net cash flow. Uh, for the past four years, starting in 2019 to 2020, we have seen positive net cash flow for the portfolio. Um, I will note that for 2023 year date, uh, our current exposure um, is negative uh, to the tune of around $100 million. Um, the drop in real estate and just broader real assets transaction activity um, is having an impact, um, hence why we are negative cash flowing for the moment. The next couple of slides, we'll talk about our initiatives, first with 2022 recap and then on 2023. 
Uh, for this slide, uh, I won't go through all of the different initiatives. In, in general, we have been looking to diversify our portfolio with new complementary exposures, as well as maintain vintage-year uh, commitment pacing. So we'll continue to collaborate across uh, asset class teams at SPURS, which then leads me to my next slide on ESG collaboration. Um, ESG is integral to our investment due diligence process, as well as monitoring. So for the 12 commitments we made in 2022, we did have an ESG review, and Andrew and team have been super helpful in that regard. On 2023 initiatives, on the following slide, uh, the, this first slide is focused on our portfolio construction, portfolio construction goals, and the second will be focused on investment process and internal strategy and planning. Um, for some of our portfolio goals, um, the 2023 initiatives are largely a continuation of 2022 as the portfolio is maturing. Um, given a team, a dedicated team of two, we do want to be intentional. Um, so uh, as far as who and what we commit to, um, and part of that deals or will relate to, we're expecting 100% of our 2023 calendar to be focused on existing managers. On the next slide for some internal processes, um, as the private equity team mentioned, we have been implementing a CRM system uh, to help manage our relationships and due diligence process. On the second one, uh, currently we're a dedicated team of two. With the current budget, we do expect to recruit and hire a third dedicated real assets professional at the IO level. Um, so we do expect the posting out later this fall. Uh, through recurring internal discussion and collaboration, we're continuously learning from past mistakes, taking postmortems, and staying on top of manager and market trends. This now concludes the real asset team's prepared remarks. Uh, with us is Mark Cardillo of Cambridge Associates, who will now talk, who will now talk about the market environment before broader Q&A. Thank you, Chris, and good afternoon, commissioners. Um, I'll provide a high-level overview and, and outlook of the real asset uh, asset classes, beginning with real estate. Uh, I think in an effort to keep my comments more efficient, I'm not necessarily planning to go slide by slide, but everything that I discuss will be in the slide deck. Um, so beginning with real estate, commercial real estate has been a, a strong asset class really since the, the global financial crisis. Uh, up until uh, 2022, and this was largely, um, you know, the, the, that solid progress had, had largely been, uh, you know, negatively impacted by by rising interest rates. Real estate's a levered asset class; higher financing costs will will naturally lead to uh, a decline in valuations. Um, but a key point I, I want to mention is that that, and this may be obvious, but but you know. We shouldn't think of real estate, commercial real estate, as one homogenous asset class, but it's it's more nuanced than that. And, and I think the context for that is that I think when you read a lot of headlines about commercial real estate and distressed real estate, those articles inevitably immediately talk about the office sector for good reasons. There's distress in the office sector, and there'll, there'll be a lot more distress in the office sector. But those articles don't always mention other sectors that are that are um, from a fundamental perspective doing a lot better, not to say that they won't have, um, you know, be impacted ne negatively on the valuation side, given the rise in interest rates. But um, again, I just think sometimes just looking at those headlines can be a little bit misleading. And and so these are sectors like industrial and residential where, where SPURS has been growing exposure. Uh, industrial has obviously benefited from uh, the continued growth in e-commerce, more recently benefiting from onshoring and reshoring trends as more manufacturing uh, grows, uh, moves back to the U.S. Uh, and so you see occupancy, uh, excuse me, vacancy rates that are still mid-single digits in the U.S. and Europe. Uh, similarly, the apartment sector, self-storage, 
these are areas where in 2022 you are seeing uh, increases in supply uh, and that is having an impact on um, occupancy rates to a lesser degree. You're, you're seeing the impact more on, on rental rates, um, you know, declining from pretty robust levels over the past four or five years. Um, uh, and you're starting to see concessions in certain markets where, where they're giving a free month or two of rent. But, but uh, to the extent there's a positive aspect of, of rising rates and, and, and the, the pullback in financing, uh, the new construction start, starts across most sectors has, has really ground to a halt in, in this environment. And so we think that, that this period of, of oversupply will be temporary um, and there'll be a period of time where where owners will will experience you know an uptick in occupancy lower rental rates than maybe they were projecting but but given what we already see with construction starts we think that'll be fairly short-lived um, particularly when you think about the apartment sector um, there's still a shortage of housing in the u.s the demographics still support new household formation and again, rising rates uh, make home ownership uh, more challenging for a lot of folks, and and may will push a lot of people towards um, towards apartments. And so, so again, longer term industrial, residential, these are sectors that that we still think um, uh, you know make a lot of sense to 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 be active with. And you know, there'll be some short term pain, no doubt, but um, but but nothing like you're seeing in the office sector. Um, similarly. Hotels. Anybody that's traveled has probably been horrified at the how much they're paying for a hotel room, given the the hotel that they may have stayed in five years ago. And and so, leisure-oriented hotels are doing. Uh, you know, when you look at where that they, what they're doing relative to pre-COVID 2019, they're they're way ahead of um, you know where they where they had been. Business-oriented hotels struggling a little bit more, but starting to recover. Uh, and then similarly, even the retail sector, where where the plan doesn't have that much exposure. Um, you have seen uh, certain sectors really thrive. The open air retail is doing really well. Community retail is in a weird way benefiting from the work from home dynamics that are impacting the office sector as people are, are just in those communities more and taking advantage of the retail and the restaurants. Uh, clearly the, the class B and the class C malls are dead and not coming back. And that's that's probably a good analogy for, for what's what's happening and what will happen in the office sector, which is, also bifurcated, uh, we have a, a um, an exhibit in the materials that show just the vast, the disproportionate amount of leasing that's going towards the the newest office office buildings, which have the you know the best amenities and the layouts the tenants are looking for, um, and so those you know they'll, they'll be work from home is still a, a, you know a, impacting all office sectors, although maybe that's starting to change. You're certainly seeing more. More tenants, uh, or I should say, more more companies, uh, you know, more CEOs, encouraging or demanding uh, their employees come back to the office a little more frequently. As Chris noted, um, work from home is more of a U.S. phenomenon than you see in Asia or Europe, and so the uh, office occupancies, uh, excuse me, office vacancies in Europe and Asia are mid single digits in a lot of places. And so, so again, I think the the, the portfolio. As, as Chris noted, that office component of the portfolio is largely in the better quality assets. Um, it's the B and C assets that'll struggle, and there'll be a portion of B office assets that'll get, you know, perhaps become converted to uh, to residential. But I, I think that's going to happen in a in a small amount of cases, just because it is challenging to make those conversions work, just given the layouts of the office sector, and I think in a lot of cases the economics require. A, 
um, you know, subsidy from the, the municipality to, 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 to justify the, the transition to residential. So, um, so for a lot of BNC office assets, they will struggle and, and there will be, you know, certainly distress there. Um, but so I'd say in 2022, you've probably seen uh, values as measured by cap rates, which are the initial yields on these assets have backed up by, you know, 75 to 100 basis points, perhaps more for, for certain sectors like industrial, where, which had, um, had really seen a compression in cap rates. Um, and then that impact on valuations was further exacerbated by the, the banking crisis earlier this year and the pullback in, in um, uh, debt availability from a lot of lenders. And so as a result, transaction volumes are, are down significantly in 2023. Um, sellers don't want to sell unless they absolutely have to. Um, and so one impact of that is, is it, there's been a, we're not necessarily seeing that uh, those, those lower valuations there it's taking a while for those to be reflected in in private private um the, the private valuations in our in our benchmarks and in in the manager's portfolio so we'll see the impact of those valuation declines uh you know evolve, uh, continue to, to to be impacted over the next few quarters um i'd say that you know conversely in, in what's a tough market for to be an asset owner um that'll create what we think will be pretty good vintage years for real estate in 2024 and and 2025 um, and again, I think while there will be certainly will be distress in certain sectors, areas like industrial and residential areas that, that the plan has been active and will likely continue to be active, um, you'll certainly see some distress there, but we're not expecting widespread distress. I, I, I would describe it as maybe, um, you know, more likely opportunities to get exposure to asset classes, uh, you know, properties at a, at a more attractive valuation, a better yield, and and an underwriting that doesn't require, you know, especially heroic assumptions to uh, to to get to the target returns. Uh, perhaps you know, transitioning to the in infrastructure sector where I'd say the story is is a little bit more positive. Um, as Chris mentioned, renewable energy, digital infrastructure, so think of things like cell towers and and um, data centers, still have huge tailwinds, huge uh, capital requirements over the next few decades. And as a result, valuations in the infrastructure sector have, have remained uh, pretty strong. Um, renewable energy assets in particular have benefited in a lot of cases from you know, specific uh, contractual linkages uh, to inflation that, that, that flow right to the revenues. Um, there's a green premium now for, for renewable assets. So, uh, uh, you know, think of a, a generating asset that has a you know, given amount of megawatts, uh, a buyer would pay more for a renewable generating asset than they would for the, the same megawatts that's you know, powered by natural gas. Uh, and then lastly, the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. will be a, a, a pretty meaningful opportunity and have a meaningful impact on the infrastructure sector as, as more renewable projects will be funded. That'll create opportunities for developers, but also service providers and, uh, and suppliers to the renewable sector. Uh, similarly, within the digital infrastructure space, huge tailwinds driven by you know, the growth in technology and in, in, in all aspects of our lives. And most recently, AI is, is having a material impact or will have a material impact on the, on the need for data centers. Um, you know, that, that's, um, which was a sector that you were starting to see some concerns around new supply, but, um, but those dynamics have completely changed. Um, not a sector we're expecting to see much distress. If anything, uh, maybe we're concerned about valuations in some of these sectors that are, that are, um, that are um, you know receiving a lot of capital and 
Uh, I'd say those concerns are largely on the core uh, lower risk return end. So think of a uh, you know fully built out wind farm or solar farm where those properties are probably trading at uh, levels that imply a, you know, a mid single digits uh, rate of return for the buyer. Um, we think the better opportunities are more on the the value added segment of the market, which you know, requires development, which, which uh, you know, has its own risks, obviously, but can be mitigated through, uh, through picking, picking the right GPs. Uh, and then we also like energy transition plays. You may recall, we, we, we made a commitment uh, a few months ago, but, um, you know, a way to benefit from these trends and, and the development that's taking place, but, uh, but, um, but, you know, sort of supplying the picks and shovels, so to speak, to use that analogy and, and uh, uh, benefiting from those megatrends without, um, you know, and hopefully a better, a better return. Uh, and as we look forward to the next, you know, even six months in terms of what's on the commitment calendar, we're, we've got, um, you know, new commitments lined up for most likely uh, funds focused on, again, data centers, cell towers, um, a, a broad renewable energy place. So continuing to grow that part of the portfolio. Uh, just quickly on natural resources, since that's a, uh, a declining part of the portfolio, but it's still meaningful today. And 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 the reason it's declining is because it's largely fossil fuel related uh, energy investments. Uh, as much as we like to find timber and, and agriculture investments, it's hard to find those opportunities that meet the plan's uh, return profile. And so, um, so the good news here is, you know, given that it's still a meaningful segment of the real assets portfolio is that fundamentals are decent. Oil prices have largely traded between $60 and $80 a barrel over the past year. And you know, that's a level that allows producers to make a good return. It, it leads to activity uh, in the field that, that benefits the service providers. Um, and those prices will fluctuate based on expectations around uh, uh, recession, uh, economic growth. And so we've been pushing more towards the, the $80 level as, as the timing of a recession um, uh, or the, the severity of it gets pushed out. Um, similarly, the industrial metals will be impacted by those economic expectations. But, you know, the so-called green metals, the lithiums and cobalts and, and metals that are used for, um, you know, batteries and, and um, uh, electric vehicles, a huge demand to continue to find those, those metals, pull them out of the ground, find them in, in jurisdictions that are, uh, that are easier to, uh, uh, to work with. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we would still expect to see some growth there. Um, so not to be redundant, but you know, this energy transition that we're going through, it is a transition, meaning we will still need oil and gas for, for you know, a long period of time. And so in that context, it's the portfolio should benefit from having that exposure here. And, and uh, but nevertheless, that portfolio of uh, traditional energy investments, that'll wind down um, and the exposure to the renewable energy sector will grow in line with hopefully quicker than the broader economy. So, uh, so that transition will continue to occur and, and we certainly look forward to providing future updates on the, the pace of that transition and how that, how that, um, how that progresses in the portfolio. But with that, let me hand it off back to Tanya. Okay. Uh, that concludes our prepared remarks and we'll open up for questions. Two questions. Chris, is energy 2.0, is that renewables? No, that's generally still. Renewable energy is what I'm focusing on. No, it's still generally conventional energy, but just a different model where you have the U.S. conventional shale boom where fund managers, companies were focused on acquiring acreage and doing development. Now, 
groups are focused more on cash flow and producing assets, given uh, U.S. energy markets are maturing. It's still conventional energy, oil, and gas. Okay, I know you uh, got us into some renewable energy funds. I'm just wondering how focused you are on that at all. We are, and we have been active in that space for a number of years. Um, we have also been making a number of commitments, have a handful uh, or at least a couple of core managers in that space. Um, so we have been emphasizing and growing that portion of the portfolio. Great. Uh, the word fusion is coming back up on the radio all the time. Second question, in terms of this $5 billion plus portfolio for real, how much of it would you estimate percentage-wise is in REITs? Currently, we, we don't have any dedicated exposure towards REITs, and our managers don't generally invest in REITs, so it's negligible. Don't generally. Um, is it worth considering? Maybe you're trying to specialize, but in terms of there's a liquidity issue, I know in the absolute return, we change things a little bit to have more liquidity, which means less longer-term stuff. I'm just wondering, in real estate, there is that element of liquidity with REITs, assuming you found a good manager and that, that, that. Yeah, definitely. We did have a REITs allocation for a period of time. I think it was discontinued back in 2017. It's on our radar screen. It's uh, on our weekly discussions, and we do have plans to review that um, closer or in greater detail this calendar year, given kind of the, the valuation kind of mismatch between public and private. Um, so it's on our radar to do list. Uh, nothing's imminent, um, but we do consider public securities REITs. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Just a couple of questions. So one, one of the things as I was listening to the presentation that I just needed to keep wrapping my head around was reconciling some of the trends that you're explaining to us with some of the anecdotal stuff that we see here locally, because it was try hard to reconcile. So I'm hoping that you can help us a little, you know, we hear, hear about the Westfield Mall uh, situation, uh, the large Hayes uh, and Van Ness construct, apartment construction projects stopping, and then of course the struggles with downtown office space. But there were some examples that I heard you as you were as y'all were presenting around areas where apartments and you know single family rentals being an opt a source for optimism, and some forms of office space possibly being an area for optimism, and then even in some forms of malls. Uh, and so I was wondering if you can kind of unpack so that. You know, as we try to message uh, what locally is a very different narrative from your analysis of the portfolio, that'd be helpful to us. Sure. Um, yeah, I think it, it does depend on our markets. Crowley, San Francisco, Bay Area is one of the most negatively impacted as far as some of these trends, and perhaps more so, say, in San Francisco proper or Oakland as it relates to um, apartments uh, or office space or some of the retail space just given the dynamics, whereas perhaps some of the suburb, suburban markets like a San Jose or parts of the East Bay um, might be doing quite well. I think there are some pockets of, of growth in, say, leasing activity with the AI uh, kind of resur or resurgence or uh, uh, trends there. We do hear of groups taking up office space in San Francisco and the broader Bay Area as the capital of AI uh, for now. Um, but the trends are definitely, unfortunately, negative um, within at, at least San Francisco proper. Uh, in parts of the Bay Area, but parts of uh, the Sun Belt, um, Texas, uh, areas nationally, um, there are different trends than, say, here. And San Francisco in particular has been hit really hard with the remote work phenomena, and um, that we're probably one of the largest big cities. We're lagging behind everybody else, and that's one of the key reasons why. And that impacts what is 
trickles down to everything, right? Retail, hotels, everything else, unfortunately. And that, and that kind of tied into one of my other questions about the difference between domestic versus abroad and, and the work from home. It seemed like the part of the presentation was that San Francisco may be an outlier within the U.S., but the U.S. is also an outlier around the globe in terms of work from home phenomenon. That, that's right. Uh, I mentioned there, there are some of those work from home trends that are probably more accelerated in, say, the U.K. or Australia, but say in, in Asia, Japan, other parts of Asia, um, from a cultural perspective or just not having enough space um, at your own home residence, um, people are generally showing up to the office from a logistics perspective. I think there's groups that track that information. I think generally some of the bigger cities north in the Northeast or maybe office properties, for example, are at 50% of capacity. Compare that to the Texas markets that are 70, 80%, maybe higher, and and largely never really left the office uh, except for a few months in the early days of COVID. And and again, San Francisco and other some other West Coast markets are probably even lower than 50%. So unfortunately, this is you know, just a tougher market for, for a lot of these sectors. Thank you. Uh, additionally, you'd mentioned perhaps a need for some municipal subsidies in some areas for conversion of property. Can you unpack that a little for us? Yeah, I think, um, I just think maybe as office values continue to decline, perhaps office properties, the values will get to a level where it makes economic sense for a, for a developer to, to, to buy that and to, to either demolish it or, or convert it. I think the problem is, again, a lot of the layouts don't uh, lend themselves to, to converting it to uh, to residential, so they probably need to be demolished and, and rebuilt. So with those costs, and I think just with the with the added, um, you know, level of risk of, of taking on a project like that, uh, I think for a lot of developers, it, they can be doing other things that are that are easier and, and, and you know, not getting to that level of return, but getting an acceptable return. And so, you know, there's there's been articles about um, you know in Chicago, for example, where where I think developers have, or, or the you know the mayor has has talked about ideas of, of perhaps you know trying to uh, to to do to you know engage in activity to to spur development. But I, I think yeah, whether it's sort of tax abatements, which sometimes you see related to affordable housing, perhaps perhaps those kind of um, you know public to private partnerships are are what's needed to spur some of the development because it makes sense. I mean, there's too much office, there's not enough residential, there's certainly not enough affordable residential. So ideally that, that you know, those groups can come together, but it's it's obviously complicated. And, and, and that's really in these markets that you're talking about that ha that were sluggish in the return office, they wouldn't be doing this in like you said, Texas or something. No, it, no but yeah, the, some you know, the New York, Chicago, certainly some of the cities that have had declining populations, it would make a lot of sense to consider. And my last question is uh, on some of the other, when I was looking at the portfolio, self-storage and and cell towers was the other one, but the specifically self-storage, storage, we're seeing, I'm seeing it elsewhere where I'm reading articles and they're talking about this. Can you explain a little bit of where this trend is going? Is this a short-term thing? Is there some long-term projection? Why is self-storage such a booming area? Yeah, I think it's it's done well from an asset class perspective as it's driven by kind of life events, whether it's divorce, people moving, uh, just general changes that aren't necessarily tied to the economy. Um, so it's generally been a stable, defensible asset class for, for a number of investors. It's also quite fragmented or, or still owned a lot by kind of mom and pop investors, although there are the large publicly traded REITs, um, but there is still an opportunity to acquire these relatively small properties or develop properties in the right locations. Um, so the main attraction is it's not necessarily tied to GDP 
um, impressive less cyclical than say office retail. So I, I imagine people have been getting divorced and moving for many, many years, but it, it is the idea that it's mom and pops and it has really been consolidated is kind of the op opportunity or. The, uh, there's a number of trends and also because it's based on life events uh, in a relatively small percentage of someone's expense, oftentimes they're not inclined or motivated to move their furniture or property out of these uh, facilities. So owners historically have been able to push rent increases uh, to the consumers without much impact of people leaving. Okay. The sector did boom in, in during COVID as, as people started to work from home and so needed to create that home office. So there was a probably a pull forward of demand that, that now you're seeing the, the post COVID, um, you know, dynamics, it's, it's flattening out a little bit, but, uh, but, um, yeah, to, to, to Chris's point, there's, it's, it's very defensive in terms of, uh, you know, in, in difficult economies, maybe people downsize or, you know, need to move. And so the, it's been a pretty stable, stable asset class that, that people don't always think about. Thank you. Yeah, so before I'm slow, let me interrupt. Total redefinition of the city and worldwide and Redefinition of the city and work life and intransigency leads to having to stuff things in the storage facility, not to mention building out new properties that are in new areas that are, have a different metric in building and work. And people are, so this is, uh, it's an interesting area. Um, thank you. Thank you very much for the presentation. And any further questions? Yeah. Thank you, guys. Public comments. Do we have any public comments? Seeing none, a uh, reminder to any callers to press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers? Madam Secretary, we have no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Okay, let's call the last uh, is it the last item, not the last item. It's the next. Item number 13, discussion item, Chief Investment Officer's Report. Thank you. Um, just wanted to start off by saying thank you to, to the uh, board members. It's been a lot of uh, uh, topics to get through uh, this afternoon and detailed topics, and I really appreciate uh, your engagement and the good questions that, that you asked. Um, what I had asked the team as they did these uh, asset class reviews that we not only reported on performance and, and the numbers, but really highlighted the judgment of the team and their ability to um, think about where we want to go, uh, go uh, moving forward. Uh, so hopefully that came through uh, in the presentations today. With respect to the CIO report here, um, I'll make a few points on performance uh, and then as always uh, provide an update on the board approved investments. So on the performance side, um, I want to reiterate, we put the uh, performance numbers in here. We, we meet monthly, so we provide them to you monthly, but you uh, know that we have a lot of private market exposure. So 
providing performance numbers on a monthly basis. Uh, basis has to come with a big asterisk that these are estimated uh, numbers with lags built in. Um, our AUM today stands at 34.5 billion. Uh, looking a little longer term, three-year performance, again, estimate, is at 10.3%, notably uh, exceeding the long-term actuarial rate of return assumption of the 7.2%. Um, and, and think about that for the last three years, 10.3% return, given all the turmoil in the market, we, we've had COVID, we've had rate resetting, inflation, bank struggles, uh, but we continue to be in a strong position given the diversification uh, and allocation of, of our portfolio. <coughs> One point uh, related to our asset allocation that I do wanna continue to highlight for the board as I had done in the prior month, uh, is that we are outside of our asset allocation guideline for treasuries. Um, specifically, treasury allocation is at 2.1% versus the guidelines, which have a range of 3 to 12%. However, we do have cash today. Our cash stands at 2.2%, um, and the range there is 0 to 5%. So as I discussed last time, uh, we are thinking about sort of treasuries in combination with uh, cash as our source of liquidity. And even uh, today, you can you can earn some uh, return on that, that cash. So we're in an okay liquidity uh, position, um, but again, just wanted to be consistent in, in reporting that uh, clearly to the board. And finally, um, uh, with respect to this uh, report each month, my approach here uh, is to give the highlights. Uh, we have more detailed performance reports on a uh, quarterly basis, and I'm going to um, um, let those conversations drive the performance discussion. But if at any point board members want to talk more about what, what are in these slides and the performance, I'm certainly happy to, to do that. Uh, unless there are any questions there, I'll go ahead and turn it over to the approved investments, and I'll read through the script. Sure. At uh, the board meeting on April 20th, 2023, the retirement board approved in closed session an investment of up to uh, 50 million euros to MCP Private Capital Fund 5. Um, our investment uh, to that fund closed on July 27th, 2023. This investment is classified as a capital appreciation investment within the private credit portfolio. And this is the third uh, investment uh, with metric. Next, Blackstone Energy Transition Partners 4. At our meeting, uh, the board meeting on June 15th, 2023, the board approved in closed session an investment of up to 70 million in Blackstone Energy Transition Partners 4. The commitment of 70 million to the fund closed on July 31st, 2023 classified as an infrastructure investment within the real assets portfolio. And it's the 12th investment uh, with the group. Finally, uh, Altaris Health Partners 6. At the July 20th board meeting, the retirement board approved in closed session a commitment of up to 75 million in Altaris Health Partners 4 and priority co-investment vehicles. Our commitment of 75 million to Altaris Health Partners closed on July 28th, 2023. And um, this is classified as a buyout investment within our private equity portfolio and our third commitment to Altaris. Includes my remarks for the CIO report, but certainly happen to go into any more detail or answer any questions. Okay, any questions? Okay. Um, 
I, I just want to spend more money of, of your operating funds and encourage my, uh, I, I, from my opinion, um, the, you know, as the world changes, um, lots of theories and better ideas and whatever are going to come out of a lot of smart people. And I know Joe is an avid, and, and Joe and Leona are avid attendees of conferences and the like. And this is something that the, the retirement system does support. And I would only encourage board members to pay attention to the, the plan funds that were given and in, expand their mind. It benefits the plan, I think. So said, uh, any further business? Anything for the good of the order? No, go ahead. Public comment? Yeah. yeah. Before any public comment, AJ, did you have something? I thought we were doing public comment. Yeah, we're on good of the order. Well, no, no public. Yeah, we're on public. No, we're on public. Sorry. A any questions on the CIO report? Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> no. Any call for public comment? Sure. Calling public comment. Any else? Public comment. See none. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, we have no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls. Public comment is. Call the final uh, um, item. Item number fourteen. Discussion item. Retirement board member. Good of the order. No. No. Yep. Oh. Uh, so to my fellow members, uh, I just wanted to express some appreciation to uh, the members of Unite here that came up from Los Angeles at great expense to um, uh, speak to us, but also uh, the letter that we all received, or at least most of us received, detailing some of their concerns. I definitely found the allegations to be concerning, um, but I know that our staff does a great deal of due diligence uh, when looking at any investments. My primary concern when I heard these, though, is just uh, the lack of labor peace and the threat it can pose to possible returns on our existing investments. So I'm definitely, um, you know, when I hear about potential liability or potential labor issues that might have uh, impact on returns on existing investments, I do have some concerns um, that I'd like to get more information on. So. Any other comments? No, I would just like to echo the same concerns uh, after reading the letter that was sent to all of us, as well as listening to the comments. And I would like some further due diligence into what's going on and uh, the impact it, it may have on our, our performance, as well as just uh, the optics overall. I don't. Any further comments? Items? Nothing? All right, we're adjourned. Public comment. Public comment, excuse me. We have no in-house public comment. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, we have no callers on the line. Thank you, hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. We're adjourned.